the thing is, it's really just water manipulation, really. I mean, I, I'll lose 10 pounds in my one-hour workout the night before a fight. Right. Um, and then the next morning, I wake up three, three, four pounds over and then cut a little, and then lose a little bit of weight that morning just by sweating some stuff out, um, just sweating water out. Then you feel horrible for a few minutes. Luckily, you step on the scale and then boom, you rehydrate. And then 30 minutes later, you got a gallon of water in, which is eight pounds. So now I'm 163. An hour later after that, I have another gallon of water, which is another eight pounds. So now you're looking at 171 within two or two and a half hours of the weigh-in. You know, so I'm already back in the 70s after two hours of the weigh-in. Diana Rossini joining us today. Slow pasta, as we call her, affectionately. You know, beating her to the punch on um, on uh, Kyle Long signing with the Chiefs. But she was first. She beat you. She beat Adam Schefter. She beat Ian Rappaport when it came to Julio Jones. So we'll get her take on that. We'll, we'll get her take on the Titans. She's fresh off a bachelorette party. My friends don't have bachelor parties anymore. <laughs> we had a freaking party. It was a lunch, dude. We had a lunch. So Diana Rossini will uh, will join us in a bit. It's been too long. She is the source on that Julio Jones breaking news. Okay, I'll be an I'll be a source on that story. Yeah, he's uh he's hurt a lot and not so good. So let's all oh, relax God, a little bit. You're just you're just insufferable ah. sometimes with the, You just had to eat. No, I'm no, I'm shutting that down. That. I don't want anybody to say like they said on the green light pod and then it gets back to like Julio Jones or something I'm like uh, who the fuck is the green light pod. All righty. Julio Jones. Cool. And a good football player. Colt still win that division. Can I report that? Oh, you, you and I division. might be parking our cars in the same garage. Okay. There. Mike Chandler also joining us today. UFC fighter. So you presumably never heard of him because he, he's a fighter. I had I uh, have we already talked to him. We talked to him. Okay, behind the curtain, we have already talked to him. I had not heard of the guy. I'm among his biggest fans now at this point yeah. after spending better part of He's 60 minutes with him. a big fan of yours, or you're a big fan of his. I'm a big fan of his. Okay, you're among his biggest fans. That makes yeah. sense. You yeah, got, you got me? Yeah, I got it. You, just, you in my garage? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mike Chandler is a, um, is a UFC fighter. He was a, a Bellator fighter for a long time. Um, won a bunch of you know fights there and was like a three-time champion. And uh, only recently, at the the ripe young age of thirty-five, transitioned in the UFC, knocked out a guy named Hooker, barely know her. And <laughs> can you say I don't even really know what that joke means? <laughs> Just anything that ends in an ER. That's what I say. That's what the kids say. Um, like blooper. Barely know her. Right. It just worked for Hooker. There's a guy named Hooker. He knocked him out in Abu Dhabi. And since then, everybody's been like, oh, this Chandler guy's got game. You know, like, good Lord. I wish he was in the UFC a long time ago. Then he fought uh, another dude in the past couple months. And he lost that one. Anyways, brilliant dude. Really uh, cerebral. You would agree? Yes. Yeah, we just talked to him for a while. And um, he's going to talk, talk to us about all that stuff from, you know, 
losing a couple weeks ago in you know on one of the biggest stages he's been on to you know that that big coming out party in the UFC to fighting in Abu Dhabi what's different about that the training to you know maybe some tips for you street fighting tips really good interview even if you're not into fighting the guy is sitting down right now at 192 pounds he fights at 155 and we'll get into that math because that's some crazy shit quite frankly (laughs) that's some crazy shit I'm I'm here at 162 trying to crawl my way up to like 165 and he's just dropping 30 on a dime. It's bloody discouraging. London, England. Hello. You know somebody in London. You just we hey last week, who'd you say hello to and we had somebody Casper Wyoming. We had a listener in Casper Wyoming. I felt like we hit the jackpot. Hella encouraging. Now, some entrepreneurial type out there could just be saying, "Hey, <laughs> I'm currently in Casper, Wyoming. This is an honor system deal. Yeah, honor system. Don't tweet us and tell us you're in like Helena, Montana. Or London, England. If you're not. A terrific spot. London, England. Interesting thing about London, England to me is top five city to like party in, but also bottom five city to be hung over in. Hmm. Go on. Legitimately the only, like one of the only cities that I put like towards the top on both lists. I mean, it's very gray. It's very dreary. I was hung over once oh. after we played the Jags and I couldn't wait to get out of there. It was, I had the scaries so badly in London, so badly. I had like tortured writer Sunday scaries, like 1800s writer. That sounds so amazing to be a writer in London in the 1800s. You gray, would love that. Dreary. You would yes, love that. It'd be amazing. Checkpoint, death. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you listen. Pretty, you checkpoint. Listen yeah, I listen to you yeah. when you talk. You're my co host. Um, but you know, thanks for listening. Also, Atlantic City. I want to put Atlantic City up there in uh, worst places to be hung over. First mention of Atlantic City. Yeah, there will be another one on this podcast. Um, one time we were on a bridge there, and uh, it was post bachelor party, early 2010s, and I had a panic attack, and there was traffic on the bridge, and Sunday scaries, bridge, limited space in the car. It was bad. It was just bad. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I put that up there with London. London's a lovely place, though, if you're not hungover. Thank you. We appreciate that. We Anglophiles appreciate that. Layup line today. Yeah, and we smoke that kush. Yeah. That kush. Yeah, and we ball like swoosh. Kush. It was cushy. Kush. So shout out to Ralph, um, who runs our, our social, uh, who does a tremendous job. He reminded me today that uh, June 7th, 2007, The Drought Is Over 2 came out, which is, uh, of course, a mixtape by Run DMC. Lil Wayne. Okay. You heard the song. Did you know it was Lil Wayne? No. Oh, you really don't even recognize his voice. Huh? Oh, golly, no. Unless it's Nelly or maybe Eminem, I'm, I'm flying blind. You're flying blind. Jay-Z? Okay, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You, you recognize his voice. But- that was in the middle of that tremendous run that Wayne had when we were all in college, if you're around 35, 36 years old. One of the best years of my life, and a lot of it had to do with Lil Wayne, just going home and being able to say, oh, it's a new album quality mixtape is out. Let's all listen to it as a group of dudes, man. Drought 3 was the best one, uh, and then Drought is Over 2, which you lose track um, chronologically of this shit here. Uh, came out June 7, 2007. Drought 3 I came, I came out earlier in the spring, but 
That's a song called Kush by Lil Wayne. You know what Kush is? Uh, drugs. It's drugs. Good job. Okay. Yep, drugs um, from the Hindu Kush mountains in uh, Afghanistan on the border there. It's a very resilient pot plant. Now, would that be, a, would that be an indica, a sativa? It'd be an indica. Okay. It's a couch lock. You ever hear like OG Kush, like Master Kush, uh, Cowboy Reed, you, you crunchy as fuck. I'm not saying you smoke, but you think of OG, any other Kushes? <laughs> no, I cannot. <laughs> Cowboy I mean, Reed, you crunchy as fuck. <laughs> He's crunchy as fuck. People don't, hey, we've been talking about this for a while, getting Reed one of those cameras that like people have on other podcasts that producers have. Yeah. Do you think we should leave him like Daft Punk? Or should we like, start plugging people into what he looks like yeah i don't know so daft punk is yeah. something we don't we can't see well no we <laughs> we can see him okay they got masks on and got shit. you got you it's like uh it's wilson like, from home improvement don't know that one wow. i didn't watch home improvement listen we've been through this you showed me characters from friends you think i'm joking no idea i couldn't name them i missed my whole childhood i don't know what it was yeah i don't know well um, wilson's the neighbor tim the tool man taylor <laughs> yeah. I think he's might be controversial in real life oh really yeah did he go maga i think so, so another one of those motherfuckers the uh, the guy from uh another movie that i don't know as well as everybody else when people get together and they're all like family vacation or christmas vacation that's right all that stuff. i'm like Haha, yeah i remember that part the real uncomfortable like I just don't want to announce the whole group that I don't know the movie as well as them. There was a guy in that movie that went MAGA. Oh, Quaid. yeah, right. Yeah. Dennis or Randy. Yep. And what sucks is Randy, that he, he saved the world in ID4. So never meet your heroes, they say. Two music plugs here. I'm going to fuck up the pronunciation here. Coco Roco. I'm give him a shot here. It's an Afro beat eight-piece band from london england holy yeah. smokes start with abusey junction okay? okay i'm gonna send it to you on your spotify i think they had 23 million views a couple years ago on their youtube and it kind of put them on the map but this song is like the perfect song and then skin shape i don't know anything about skin shape it's another guy from the uk hmm. uh i couldn't even describe what the music is it's one of those things that you're afraid when somebody's like what genre is that music i can't tell you I'm gonna sound stupid as fuck. It's good music. I can't again. I'm gonna I'm gonna mess up the pr pronunciation. Oracolo is the album. Check out that album. Check out the song Rubber Gloves. But let that whole album play. That album's amazing. I, I never heard it until you know last couple weeks. So new music. Check it out on Greenlight uh, Spotify. And also, I'll make a little playlist. Check out uh, Alan Jackson and and Travis Tritt and George Strait, Kenny Chesney. <laughs> And Tim McGraw will pigeonhole those folks into country music. They're nicely labeled. You can just search that on your Spotify. That won't. I don't think that'll make the layup line. Nineties country. We should make a nineties country playlist mm. though, because we could. Because definitely, we should have been cowboys. Yeah, we should have. Should yeah. should have learned to rope and ride. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Wear my six shooter, riding my pony on the cattle drive. What's your good? My good? Jeff Garland sent us a gift, dude. That's awesome. I thought the guy hated you. He sent he sent you a buttercup, uh, you know, because Jeff Garland of Curb Your Enthusiasm <laughs> fame also you. did a lot of um, he did a lot of voiceovers and 
he did uh, Buttercup in Toy Story 2, 3, 4, all the Toy Stories, but one, I think Buttercup was a latecomer, but he sent Waylon and uh, your lovely daughter, two stuffed animals. So Very shout nice. out to Jeff Garland. He was a great guest. Yes, he was. Seemed like a great guy too. Yeah. Hope we have him back. Hope he didn't hate us. Well, you just said you, you, you think I think he, he might... hated you, but I hope he didn't hate us. Yeah. You know okay. I mean? No, that's fair. I don't think he hated you. I think it was funny because he, he did the fuck you making thing off the top. Which I guess SVP just did as well. I think people uh, are kind of seeing you as the soft landing for like a, that's fine. a good laugh at the beginning. And then, they, and then they come around to your dry sense of humor. Or or don't they just come back to the punching bag again, which is fine. I don't I'm happy think you're to, a punching bag. I just think I role. think you're so dry that some people can be jarring, and they're like, "What is this guy's deal?" And I do. I'm I gonna do call you Mojave. Throw. I'm gonna start calling you Mojave, Big Mojave from now on. Desert, dry. big cactus, Big Mojave. I'd hate to like repeat a nickname. Right. Uh, I throw a fair amount of oops too. People do, can just yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah. You definitely do. Hey, good. Also, cinema related to michael goods. clayton just as good as i remember you ever seen michael clayton like the receiver oh my god dude you haven't seen michael clayton no the movie uh-uh read doesn't sound like a movie read yeah i've seen michael clayton okay 2007 film read is a human being he's seen michael clayton george clooney the cloon some of the best nights of my <laughs> life were drinking george clooney's vodka legitimately we drank the cloon on the buses in philly at the parade i drink the cloon at red rocks red rocks underneath the rocks dude afterwards got in there shout out to patrick hallahan drank the cloon michael clayton starring george clooney do you remember this receiver went to lsu he was a first rounder in 04 04 yeah michael clayton yeah yeah i played with a um mark clayton from oklahoma mm. Yeah, see how that could be confusing. But Michael Clayton is just as good now as it was then. And I just want to say this. This was 2007. The movies look super old in that period. Like the movies damn near look like they're supposed to be early 90s movies. That's how much we've advanced. And George Clooney is glowing up because I was sitting there with my wife watching the movie. I didn't feel a bit of uncomfortable. Oh. Because he was just kind of, yeah, I just think George Clooney looked average as fuck in that movie. Michael Clayton looked kind of, he kind of looked dumpy. That's the guy that everybody likes, George Clooney. Definitely not an international heartthrob status. As a guy with the with the kind of bangs, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's better with it all back I or feel really like, short. Yeah, I feel like the, the Michael Clayton is the version of seeing like that fabled Little League team on a bad day, and you're like, we can beat these guys. Yep, well said. I don't think, I, I'm not seeing it. Um, also, the, the real good. Damn, the, dude. Yeah, I watched two movies this Three weekend. Three-pack. Yeah, three pack. A lot of good. I'm gonna have problems finding the bad. I might find. I uh, got a little ugly for you. Okay. RoboCop. Saw RoboCop for the first time this weekend. Reed, have you ever seen RoboCop? I have not. All right, you have homework. It's like part of your contract. I'm gonna write this thing in, but like you need to go watch RoboCop and report back to me on the next podcast. Okay? You think you can find time in your day to watch RoboCop? It's only like a hundred minutes long. One hundred two minutes runtime. Yep. Can do. Can do. RoboCop. I need a book report from Reed on RoboCop. <laughs> but I just want to say, some of the worst policing, like the worst police techniques of all time exist. And there are some pretty bad ones. There are. I mean, they, they, like, it's, it's, it's kind of like uh, the tallest NBA player. It's that kind of discussion. But like, 
some of the worst policing tactics of all time, I mean, from an effectiveness standpoint, exist in this movie. And it's just perfectly 80s. It's incredible. RoboCop looked like Johnny Sins. I just realized that. Prawn. Is that right? You know who Johnny Sins is? Only from you, my friend. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And I also wonder now that I'm watching many years later and without seeing the movie, you know what RoboCop looks like, right? I do now. Why did he need a face? Literally, he did nothing with his face. Why did they have to put like a... (laughs) Why did they have to put the face on there? Yeah, I don't know. None of this makes me comfortable. Read, watch RoboCop. My Good is also a film, Chris. Yep. 1992. This is a top three, maybe top five for me. It's called My Cousin Vinny. Mm-hmm. And I caught it on one of the, uh, I've cut the cord. I caught it it's on a, a Hulu Live. It's a good movie. Yeah. Marissa Tomei oh, steals the show. She's great. Joe Pesci. I love Marissa Tomei. And I caught it at the right at the right spot just when we're uh, in the courtroom. Two Utes. Identical. I, it was just great. Hey, Marissa Tomei in the 90s. Total babe. Marissa Tomei in the, in the 80s, 70s, 2000s, 2000s, 2000s the, 10s, the 10s, the, the 20s. 20s. Babe. Yes. It's a good movie. All right. Bad. But bad and the ugly. I think we can roll into one. Okay. You got one as well. I think I think we have the same one. I think we talked about this. You want to go on three? Yeah, on three. One, two, three. Titus, Titus and Tate. Tate. It's ugly, dude. You, you alerted me to this. And a friend, uh, I, I wish I could say that I found it on my own. I didn't. Uh, a friend alerted me that these two fellas have finally paid up on their bet. The uh, bet was it, we did a bracket challenge back in, God, when was, it's like, it feels like it was 2020. That would have been March 21, before the tournament starts. And look, the reasoning given for their not paying up on the bet in a timely manner was ridiculous. One, they didn't care for my Fibonacci scoring system, the best scoring system in the C2A tournament. Okay, that was the reason. They they said that there was some confusion around the scoring, right? Right. Fibonacci, or as Cowboy likes to say, Fibonacci. Fibonacci. Now, Titus, or Tate, or whoever... If we had done standard scoring, you went up against two badasses who picked the national champion. So it would have been way more ugly than it was than in Fibonacci scoring. I'm just saying, I sent you a screenshot recently. I said, per making, this is a forward because you're all over this. To, to, To make things clear, like Titus Tate, he really wanted this. This was me. I was getting dragged along for the ride here. That's fair. Okay. I said, Fibonacci scoring is the only way to go. I, I broke it down by round, two points each in the first, three points in the second, five in the, in the Sweet 16, Elite Eight, eight points, Final Four, 13 points each, Championship, 21 points. Perfect. You got our brackets, right? And that's now they're out our, here. That's from the guy with the cabbage. These clowns saying oh. they didn't even know what brackets we were using. They, they, painted us to, like, they painted us as some charlatans. Jeez, fellas. Yeah, and thanks for, uh, thanks for paying up in June. My children will never listen to another Titus and Tate podcast. Where does this stand? I mean, seriously, when it comes to scandals, this is right up there with, I don't know, steroids and baseball, big tobacco. If we're in the college basketball world, maybe this is a Rick Pitino sort of situation where he, of course, 
has sex with the woman in the Italian restaurant. Okay, I don't want to get on that hit list, dude. Okay. I think part of my takes on that hit list, okay. dude. All right. I think All right, hey Rick. Rick. <laughs> I'm the host of this podcast. My name is Chris Long. And if you have any I'm, issue course, with the uh, Cowboy Reed, Gunner, producer extraordinaire. <laughs> you guys voices sound the same evidently. But yeah, it's bad. I mean, it's a bad look. It's a bad look for those guys, you know, to paint us as like we were, to be honest, we jumped them on it. We challenged them like impromptu. But they're the experts, right? They're the experts. But they were right about what what they said on their podcast, which is that we see all the games just on a different level. We do. Baylor, boom, champs, obviously. Ohio State, Mark Titus. Oral. What did, uh, what did. 45 minutes of oral. (laughs) What did. What did Tate say? Who's going to win? Who, who? Uh, I don't know. Both their brackets were terrible, but his his, his Tar Heels lost. Che- and a Cheeks and a Cheeks payout. Tar Heels lost first round. You know what the penalty is? They got to come back on the show. Yeah. Next college basketball season. That's right. We're good for now. We're good for now. We don't want any short-haired Mark Titus's. And to be clear, yes, the the Wahoos also lost first round, but that wasn't the bet. The bet was to fill out your yeah, bracket Yeah, we knew correctly. our team was going to be possibly cheeks it's the law of averages yeah we won it the last time around don't know if y'all caught that anyways i just want to finish this thing with class before we get diana rossini on to talk about julio jones and her bachelorette party not hers but when she was attending and that sort of thing we think they're awesome at what they do we do you see how we're like being serious about like they really are really good at what they do nice good looking smart have you seen them in a tuxedo guys look like frank sinatra and they look like freaking george another Clooney guy from the rat pack michael clayton <laughs> they don't look like george Clooney and michael clayton i'm trying to compliment them but yeah you're probably right realistically yeah, yeah. uh hey diana rossini is going to be joining us and then um stick around for mike chandler i ran over a squirrel and i just want to be oh out front and up front can we talk about that real quick yeah uh, i think it's my second all time did it twitch uh no it was a it was it was clean and i i really do feel bad uh so bad that i don't it, like hitting stuff either it delayed my oatmeal by about 45 minutes because i just didn't feel good i dropped the rabbit off at camp she goes to camp once a week and uh came back and i think it hit the uh left rear i think it almost made it hit left rear a little bump looked in the back ah you know ah and then i'm leaving the neighborhood it's in your neighborhood you'll see it on the way home really and uh way out the neighborhood that that qualifies as an ugly for me. It was not a good scene. Did you do the groundhog last week that was in near my driveway? No. I felt bad about the groundhog. It did it was hit? Like a young groundhog. It was hit? Yeah, it was hit. Usually they're good about staying out the roadway. Yeah, no, not this one. Got a yeah. family of foxes across the road. Jeez. Right, you know the foxes. Unfortunately, yeah. People talking about the foxes in our neighborhood, huh? Yeah. These fuckers are unafraid. And I've got a bear two doors down. You seen the bear? We could probably do safaris in our neighborhood. Yes. Slap everybody in a Volvo station wagon. The ones where you used to sit backwards. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Hell yeah. On the way to carpool. Yeah. Shout out to to Jenny Lesser. Wherever you are, that's your maiden name. Sure, now you're married away. But we used to ride in the back of the... Oh man, her uh, her husband's gonna feel awkward about this. <laughs> you rode together, you two? Yeah, we rode backwards. Y'all were like, "Wow, look at the road." It's well, yeah, but the point is, we could do like suburban safaris, squirrels, groundhogs, 
black bears, foxes, foxes, deer, the whole nine yards, Labrador retrievers. I don't like killing bugs. Oh, I like killing bugs, but the squirrel messed me up. I'll put a spider outside. Oh, no, no, no. Leech, leech her to the spider. <laughs> yeah, but not. But you feel bad about running over the squirrel. Oh, yeah. Okay. It ruined my morning. Quite the recovery. Thank you. Diana Rossini. My gosh, dude, I'm shocked we got her. Diana Rossini, friend of the program, but it's been too long, and she was the center of the football universe this week. Newsbreaker. Newsbreaker, the original source. Have you heard she was the first to break the news on Julio Jones? I have heard that. That she was the source. Yes. Okay. Reddit. Diana Rossini, how are you? Reddit. That's where you get your news, huh? Wow. I meant I meant I I read it like on the on the (laughs) Twitter website. But no, nah, it's probably on Reddit as well. It's everywhere. It yeah. It's everywhere. It's also on, I don't know, Adam Schefter, Ian Rappaport's yeah. Twitter. They basically copy paste it. But anyway. Thank you. So good to see you. It's good to hear your voices. Um, I love all the tongue-in-cheek comments. You know, Big Cat, PFT, you guys, Rosillo, everyone was blowing my phone up. Which, by the way, when you break a, when you break a big story, there's no better feeling than when you actually hear from your friends and people in the business. Just being like, yeah, or whatever. Everybody has like their own little cool way of reaching out to say like, I see you. But it's even better when people are funny about stuff because <laughs> I guess it's pretty obvious. You can see, I mean, yeah, you can see who's on stories, who's got it first. And the insider game is so catty and, and it's really lame, but I have fun with it. And I love when, when people call others out. When you heard about the Julio thing before anybody else in the media business, when did you first get a beat on this thing? So I've been trying to really steer away from just the obvious basic version of what people think I am, which is this Italian girl from New Jersey. So like, I actually put effort into it now. Like I try to wear more blazers and I wear like lighter makeup. Like I I swear, because I'm like, I'm a national reporter, but I'm just so New Jersey. Like I need to, I need to grow, but I was in Atlantic City. (laughs) (laughs) it's just like not helping me you know like of course i'm in atlantic city like the dirtiest place in the state for a bachelorette party for my sister-in-law who's 25 everyone's 25 and and they're at a pool the pool's gray it's not even (laughs) blue or green you know Every dude around me has like a tribal tat and you're in heaven. I was so happy, but no, no, Uh, (laughs) I was actually thinking like, this is just, this was my head. This was my playground like 10 years ago. Like, Oh my, I would have been in the water. That's the thing about bachelor parties now. When somebody does it, like I said to Macon who recently got married and didn't do a bachelor party. And I thought it was a tremendous disservice to all his 30 plus year old friends. Like, it's an opportunity. It's like we get to go do this thing over that we we thought was was done, like that bachelor party wedding circuit. If you get a late wedding, a bachelorette party, you got to show out. But like you said, everybody's 10 years younger. How was your liver? So full disclosure, it was an outdoor pool, like day club thing. Yeah. That was like we did. And because of COVID and obviously all of us have been in the same situation, which we haven't been very social. So... <laughs> Again, not helping myself here, but I just heard the DJ and just like the music, and I was, we are back. But <laughs> I could not wait. Like I was pretending to be a grown up, like a married woman now, mature. 
But like, I just needed one of these 25 year olds to like egg me a little and just push me. That's all I needed. And fortunately, they read that pretty quickly. I'm sure I made it obvious. So, so really the original question here, the football related angle here, uh, not my, my ridiculous social life is I've known about the Julio stuff since before the draft. I heard Julio wasn't happy. It, and it's funny. It's one of those stories that if this happens sometimes, Chris, you know stuff. And for whatever reason, you don't think it's that big. And then you tweet it or you say it to somebody and they're like, whoa. And you're like, wait, really? You think that's a big deal? It's mm. like, uh, yeah. And maybe that's like a journalism muscle I need to improve. But I just feel like sometimes I do that where I have to like say it out loud to someone to get the depth of it, you know, and then in the same token, you know, I'll tweet something that I think is huge and I get like two retweets, you know, and I'm like, all right, that was trash. I got to get better. (laughs) You actually told me to make a pack. You were like, if I have any really shitty tweets, just tell me and you'll do the same for me. You haven't reported back on any shitty tweets. So either you're not reading my Twitter or you didn't follow through on your head. I blocked you. Um, (laughs) I, I read your stuff all the time. Um, <laughs> when you get like in the wormholes of like NBA, just stuff I don't care about as much. I don't, I just, Everything I don't really, football. Yeah. Yeah. I just ignore it. But as soon as you have a take on something, I'm mm. like, I, I don't want to get into it. Cause I don't remember what it was that I, I want to respond. Cause I, was, I actually really disagreed with you, but mm. I, was, I don't, I don't want to get into Convenient. This. You don't remember Probably what it was. Rod. You're kind of annoying to fight with on Twitter, so I'd rather just text you and be like, yo, what, what are you talking about here? But well, I never got uh, that text. Maybe you're afraid to debate me. <laughs> uh, I'll go through someone else. Like, tell Chris this. So, yeah, so I knew the story. I knew around the draft, too, when it was heating up. And, you know, it, it got out from all of us that Julio wasn't happy. He didn't want to be there. The Falcons knew he wasn't happy. Those guys took over there, took over the job. Terry Fontenot, the GM, and Arthur mm-hmm. Smith, the head they were well aware that Julio wanted out. This was all, this was all part of it. This was like not a secret. Um, it just looked really sexy around the draft to hear like the Falcons are open to trading Julio. It was like, Oh my gosh. But it was, it was kind of part of the package they took, so to speak, when they took the job, they knew right. this. Um, and I had heard from Mildred that this was not good. Just Why though? So there is things about, Atlanta, the organization he did not like. That wouldn't change Julio with a coaching was, change. Yeah, Julio's not happy with that. I'll also share that, you know, injury's been a little bit of a concern. His practice, saying or lack thereof, is a concern. He wasn't one of those players that practiced a lot. And that became a little bit of the storyline or even the narrative here during the last few months as a concern of like a red flag. Like, is this guy going to practice? That's what the Falcons and, were upset about. Yeah. That he, there, there were some, not the Falcons of the current, but in the past, they yeah, were yeah. really trying to manage him, you know, and Dan Quinn's style is, it's really non-confrontational. He's an incredible person and a great coach, but Quinn wasn't going to be one to really get on Julio and get the best out of him. When he left Alabama, with obviously Nick Saban coming from that program, you don't get away with a lot in that program, right? So he had great habits. And I think it just changed a bit. As I, We see it a lot with players. You, you guys know this. So I, I think this became, there was a, a couple little things like this that were adding up. And it just, it didn't seem like it was going to work. And then throw the salary on top of it. And look who they draft and, you know, who they pick up as a rookie. And they're looking at, 
this offense, like, you know what, maybe we'll be all right without them. So that's the Lamb side of it. So now you have teams all in the hunt. I reported two weeks ago that there was a team that was discussing with Atlanta for a future first round pick. Right. And that exploded. And I understood why immediately because a first round pick for a 32 year old receiver, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. A lot. You can debate it though, right? You can say, I, I can see it. Conversely, though, it sounds like to the layman, you're like a second and a fourth. Like that's nothing. So like there's no in between. And you also get kickback of you're getting used by Atlanta. Right. That's not true. So when you report that stuff, as I, I think you guys would know, but I'd rather share with the listeners that maybe don't know. When I share anything about compensation, I don't. I will always get it from the team that made the offer and the team that accepted, or at least the, you know, you got to get both sides on that one because I don't want to be used. It's happened to me before. So I don't, I don't do it. I'd rather just not report it. What's the worst you'd been used? My husband told me he was (laughs) way more wealthy than he is. (laughs) (laughs) Your husband's taking a fucking beating. Can we just say that? I am, I am here for your husband. I saw you said some things about him on television and I had to turn it off. I said, I've seen the guy. He looks like a hunk. Chris, every freaking dude in Philly that he's friends with is they're going to clip this <laughs> because the group, she showed me the group chat. They have like an NBA Twitter group, like some corny thing. I never even read it, but oh, it's now just, you're going at his it, group chat. It was his face before. <laughs> now he's going to his group. I'm chat. Killing him. It's just, con- it's just constant. <laughs> it's constant. You guys in your NBA. I, it's just no, it's just playoff time for me. He must be fully. No. Yeah, I get it, but um, but how about in a football sense? What's the worst you've been used? You don't have to use names. How does it happen? I've had players share with me offers that they that they have on the table during free agency that were not true because they knew I would go back to the team they really wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. So it's usually a compensation. It's usually a compensation thing. Got it. And that's, I mean, I'm trying to think if there's anything else where you can really get played. And that's, it's why you always have to have more than one source. You know, when I started this, I was so excited about getting any piece of news that I'm like, oh my gosh, and just run with it. And and you get older and more experienced and you, you eat it sometimes, you realize it is so much smarter and better and good for your career to, to just be a little bit more conservative. And, and I will say my colleague Adam Schechter is the best at holding cards. Chris, if you guys knew how much he actually knows compared to what he shares. I, I'm on emails with him all day. And I'm like, oh, I can't, how does he know this? Like, like even this, this story, right? He Which, knows you're breaking a story before you break the story, evidently. Very rarely, I told Adam something he didn't know. And Ooh. it's the best feeling. And he, you know, he's got that great, like, just high energy all the time. He's like, wow, wow, that's great. I mean, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Stay on that. Stay on that. That's, that's, that's huge. Huge. <laughs> you and call know? me. And call me immediately. <laughs> the graphic already. He's like putting the player's head yeah. in the <laughs> He's doing the edits like a fucking middle schooler on Instagram. I just want to say this on the record before we finish the Julio thread that I held the uh, Josh McCown interviewing for the head coach job in Houston like for months. And I guess I'm not a newsbreaker, but I was like, man, if I was, this would be a bomb. You remember that on the record. So on the record, I knew that first. 
How you also forget. Yeah, how could you forget? That was a big deal. Josh McCown interviewing for a fucking head coaching job. When it comes to you breaking news, I don't really care about that one as much as I care about the one involving her brother. And I'm like, Oh mm. yeah, yeah. Well, guess who broke that? He's sitting right here. Sorry, Diana. Slow pasta. That's when we started calling you slow pasta. You used to be <laughs> you used to be uh Gal Palantonio, which you hated in um in Philly because I you know, you get Sal would walk in and then Diana would walk in. <laughs> Like total, just like the Italian media is here, and then uh, and then we got fast pasta. Shout out to Anthony Alfredo. But when Macon beat you out for that scoop, we started calling you slow pasta. I got wind that other media members were hot on the trail. Yep, so yep. I had to push it out. But it was a whole big thing between Kyle's agent and us, and we were like, "Nah, we're breaking the news." And his agent was like, "Nah, I'm friends with Schefter." And there's this whole like thing. Yeah, and we're like, "Nah, but I'm related, and it's my <laughs> podcast. I'm related to Kyle, so Kyle, I'll get Kyle to beat you up." If you yeah. know, like agent Adam Schefter. Yeah, that the agent game is nuts and the loyalties and the sharing of info. I'm growing in that space, full disclosure. Like I want an agent to say to you, I'm breaking your family news. I mean, that, I, that, how much closer can you be at right. that point? Exactly. I'm like, all right, come on. And the part about the Julio thing that I didn't get quite down here, and maybe you know something you're not saying, but Julio Jones... You're telling me what the Falcons had an issue with Julio about. Did Julio have an issue with the Falcons, or was that just like a thing that re, you know reciprocally just kind of fell apart? The sense I was getting that he just everyone close to him that I spoke, I never spoke to Julio directly. I spoke to people around him. Just kept saying he's just not happy here. He's yeah, not yeah. Happy. So you never know what that means. So I don't want. I don't want to. Well, they've sucked. So that there's that. I mean, so I, I get that. I, I guess the question is. You breaking this news, it's official. Julio's going to Tennessee. Obviously, Atlanta gets something out of it because they offload all that cap space, right? I mean, that's what this is about. I don't think people understand. I mean, who wouldn't want Julio on their team? They might have grievances against him over the last couple of years. He hasn't practiced enough, but that guy's going to help somebody. You're dumping 15 mil. I also reported it was a long shot that Tennessee was going to get him. One, because I knew about deals that were in the works. I never finished my story about how I reported a future first rounder. That deal with that team fell through at like the final out. Yeah. That happened. Yeah. Like there's reports out there that say there was never a first rounder. There was a future first rounder and those discussions were had. And they also involved another player, a current player. And they, this team did not want to give that player up. And that they were, I don't want to say they were split within that organization, but there were enough people that changed the mind of the decision makers of like, we cannot be successful without this current player for Julio. So, wow. Can you tell us that, what position that player was? I can't. Cause I think there's, I think it would, I don't know. I'm, no, I'm going to see it maturity. <laughs> see how I just asked that so confidently. It's it an interview really, technique. You just ask and then you just Diana, stop asking. Well, Diana going, Absolutely. Yeah, I was a running back. Like, knew Diana. All right. So it wasn't Smart. a running back. That means it was probably a quarterback that leaves quarterback. And not quarterback. So the story this weekend, yeah. to sum it up, I'm at the roulette table mm. and I think I'm a witch, first of all, because I'm sitting there and I just, by the way, I have like five bucks on 11, five bucks on 23. I don't know why I'm telling you what I'm betting, but this is what I was betting. And it just hit me at the roulette table. I'm like, I think something's going to happen very soon. I, I just felt it. I hit on 11, by the way. Yep. Let's go. 
and I was playing outsiders on the outside swing black. Hit on that. I'm so psyched. They give me my little money, you know, whatever it was, it's a couple hundred bucks. I asked for, you know, color me up already. The lady's like, geez, you're the worst. Take my little money. I run over. You can't, you know, a casino with the phones. They like flip out. I'm wearing a, a skirt that's like maybe an inch from like my hip, by the way. You're in New Jersey. Yeah. I just start calling everyone I knew involved in all of this. And I, they were like, it's going to get done tomorrow. I'm like, oh my God. So now I have to get all my ducks in a row of compensation and how I want to do this. So I just figure, all right, I'm going to start with just opening up my drafts in my phone and start typing now, just in case I get a little tired later, <laughs> just start typing now smart <laughs> tweets and reports. Smart ones. Right? The Falcons and the Tennessee Titans have agreed. To, you know, I'm just I'm using every lingo thing I could think of at the time. I have a million versions of it, but I also have tons of backstory. And at the time, I thought was I'm just gonna I'm just gonna dump. I'm gonna put everything out. Why not? Right. Like I wound up not doing that as you saw yesterday. I, I kept it all pretty tight and just went with the trade. Um, and I'm still deciding how much I want to share eventually. I, I think people are interested in this. Maybe a book. We should write a book one day, I think, about being the first person to break that, that Julio story. So we go to some club. It's terrible. And I'm just not present because my adrenaline's going out. I'm like, I can't go to sleep because you know what's going to happen. You go to sleep, the story breaks. Yeah. So I'm just going to stay up. So I stayed up all night and i just kept check better i mean by the way the 25 year olds all they do when they go to clubs like remember when we would go like drinks you dance you grind i'm bringing grind back by the way um <laughs> 25 year olds just TikTok and snapchat oh look like they're having fun yeah you know what i mean like they're yeah. not eating, they were having fun it wasn't that fun though you know you put in there you look their videos and it's like you would have thought where we, you would have thought we were like in the Caribbean with all these smoking hot dudes. And, and meanwhile, it's like all That's filtered. Where the smoking hot dudes are the Caribbean. <laughs> They're just there. I was just trying to think of the last place I was at where there were a lot of cute boys. Yeah. So, so I just stayed up They're snapping and chatting and doing that stuff. I'm checking Twitter, which by the way, no one even, if I was out with my girlfriends that are my age, they would be like, get off your phone, be present. You're never around. They didn't care. I guess back to the Julio thing. Well, the Tennessee Titans actually, and you're like all things Titans, like expert, like to be honest, we've been fucking around a lot, but like the quarterback controversy thing, you were the, one of the first people that called it when Tannehill and Mariota were getting ready to go to camp the year that Tannehill took his position. So like you're on the Tennessee stuff early. What do you say about this move as far as like, does this put them over the top? Because my initial take was no, but then I'm looking at some of the things they did defensively and if they're improving that side of the ball, then maybe it does. Yeah, I do think, look, their defense stinks. We, we always talk about it here. Um, they got a little bit better. I wouldn't say they got significantly better. Um, you take a look at their offense so last year, because a lot of the immediate response was, you know, this is the best wide receiver duo in the league now with A.J. Brown and, and Julio. And, and I get it. I, 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 I actually agree. But when you take a look at, just how defenses played AJ last year. Right. He wasn't doubled a lot. And it's not like they needed this piece. Like the 49ers, in my opinion, needed this piece. This, this could have been the chip for them. I, I didn't 
ever since desperation on the offensive side of the ball. Because the last I talked, last I checked, Derrick Henry's still there. And he's healthy and ready. And yes, Arthur Smith left as their coordinator, but I have never sensed from anyone on that team, players and coaches alike, that they they feel like they're going to take a step back without Arthur. And no, no disrespect to Arthur. It's just they have a way of doing things there. And it starts from Braves. And, yeah. and that's just how it works. So, you know, what's going to be interesting, though, so we talk about this practice thing. You're telling me Mike Brable is going to let a receiver come in and just not practice? Do you see how he just beats down Taylor And I mean, on Twitter? Yeah, we're talking about Julio Jones. I mean, like, we're talking about Julio Jones. We're not talking about Taylor. No shot at Taylor. We're not talking right. about – we're not even talking about A.J. Brown, who I love. And by the way – who should be very relieved that Julio came to Tennessee because those videos, they were going to hang those over his head if they didn't land Julio, the recruitment stuff he had going on. But, like, I love those guys. There's just not, like, there's a level of stardom in the NFL. When you're a Hall of Famer and everybody knows it, you don't play by the same rules. And that includes, like, listen, you went out and got him. You gave something up for him. So if Julio doesn't want to practice two days a week, Julio shouldn't practice two days a week. There are a lot of players who are a lot less than Julio who get days off in the NFL. But you know the Titans... MO better than I do. Look, Derrick Henry doesn't practice all the time. I know that. You know, they, they sort of they manage him, his legs, they're cool with it. I just think where it's the interesting dynamic to me is you don't have a head coach that's just just like a guy that's worked his way through the coaching ranks and fell into this head coaching job. You have a guy who's got three Super Bowl rings who comes from the New England way yeah. where he played with superstars. And he has a culture that he's that he knows works that he's instilled, I think, or at least has attempted to, to make them a little, little patriot way down there. And while I think he's player friendly, I have a hard time believing that when Braves and, and Julio Jones had a phone conversation, they didn't talk about practice. I'm sure they did. No way the head coach is signing off on this without knowing and feeling good that this guy's going to be there and be like the rest of the Titans. See, I think it's the other way around a little bit, though. I, there's no way Julio's signing off on, like, okay, I know he's not the one making the trade, but, like, yeah, like, I'm excited about this happening if he th if he's thinking they're going to work him like a dog. You know, like, there's just an understanding, and now he's on the other side of 30 that, like, certain players get taken care of. And also, if I'm a head coach, as long as Julio's a good teammate – He's a positive force in the building, and he plays on Sunday. I'll see you Friday. Like, I'll see you Friday for red zone. I'll see, you know, like, if you're dinged up, you get time. And if you're really good, no questions asked, at least in my book. So, I don't know. I guess for me, you're looking at the numbers. They have to let uh, Johnny Walk, who's going to make 10-plus in New England this year, uh, who we both love, uh, Davis, uh, had they picked up his option, that was 15 mil right there. So, in a sense... You know, you'll have to replace the tight end production, but you're getting Julio for less money than you would to to bring those two guys back. So they've kind of parlayed this. And again, like you said, it's not like a lot of people are going out and getting a second number one with the same body type as your 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 first number one. Uh, they only make so many Julio Joneses, so I'm trying to be you know take it easy with the comparisons. But that's this is a rare, unprecedented thing. I do think though that the closer I've looked at it, it's a good move for them. Yeah, I th I think this has got to be something. I want to see if they can make it work. 
I didn't break that story yesterday thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be spending all year in Nashville now. And I don't know. I, I want to see it. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm doubting variable. I just, I think this may be one of his, I think this could be a, a challenge for him. I think this is going to be something I, I'm interested to see how he's going to play this. And I know he won't love this because we're both UVA guys, but I think they went a long way into shoring up the back end and investing in a really talented uh, defensive back in the first round in uh, fairly out of tech. Multiple back surgeries. Julio uh, always ding. Okay, a there's a lot. Of, okay, yeah, well, and, and, uh, evidently they're going to be pushing these guys hard. But Bud Dupree coming off an injury. <laughs> okay, uh, Janoris yep. Jenkins. I mean, they've invested in their defense. I say that to just say though, last year they couldn't outscore the Browns. Can they outscore the Chiefs? So in my mind, as long as you're showing up the defense, you can do this offensively. But had you just remained the same defensively, this does not guarantee you anything. But if you can improve defensively, you got to be able to get a couple stops. I'm not like somebody who's like, you got to build around your defense. I know the new NFL and Julio is going to make their record better. But when they need a big stop in the playoffs, that's where I worry about Tennessee. So what does it say about Atlanta and Matt Ryan? What do you hear about Matt Ryan? Do you believe there's going to be a, a second act? That seems pretty imminent. Second act somewhere and any inclination where that might be and when. Real quick point. I just remembered against Baltimore, the Titans. Corey Davis disappeared and they needed him late in the game. Do you remember? Yep. Derek, they're stopping Derek, they're stopping the run really well. AJ was was just okay. He I, I forgot somebody was just cloaking him and he could not get open. And so it came to Corey. And Corey just and so maybe this is where Julio can step in. A lot of a lot of coaches not overreact, but they react to what happened in the last game, in the playoff game. You know, and I would argue, and they played in some low-scoring playoff games, some lower-scoring playoff games, that Baltimore game being one of them relatively low-scoring. I just think eventually, you know, they have to make the stops. That's all. Yeah. But for, for the Falcons now, just their approach, I never got the sense at all that players, and even including their quarterback, were, you know, banging on the door of Arthur Smith and Terry Fano's office going how could we get rid of julio you right. know i felt like everyone knew this was the writing was on the wall and just like anything else you know these guys especially their quarterback they know way more about what's going on with these guys than it even gets out um right. so i i think just in terms of the way they're looking at their offense they, they feel really good the kyle pitts thing going back to direct i had the falcons on draft night they were my team and I mean, there, there was just no question. There was no question they were going Kyle Pitts from the start. It was one of those, you know, they don't want us to like report it because it's draft night. We want to keep it exciting. But that was, they, they were going for him the whole time. And their belief in Matt Ryan, they made that call. Um, I know there was, a, there, there was a, a, a time period where I wouldn't call it a clear decision that Matt Ryan was going to be, that they were going to stick with him as the future. Right. I think there little debate there. There's some conversations and then everyone got on the same page and now they're all in on believing that Matt, Matt Maxwell has, has game left of them. Other quarterback news. We've stayed away from uh, the Deshaun Watson stuff and we're going to allow the details to play out in that situation. Obviously it does not look good. I'll just say that. Uh, but Diana Rossini, what do you know about the football side of things? Yeah, the football side of it, a couple months ago, everyone I spoke to in Houston essentially was like, stop calling us. We're not trading him. Right. That would, it's not happening. I started to talk to other teams about their interests. They were sharing with me 
they're not even calling us. Like they're, they're, they're calling us back. Casario was taking calls, but the second you got into conversation about Deshaun, it was like, gotta go. I have another call or whatever he would say. And then it flipped and then it started to change and it, it really swung the other way. And from what I can sense right now, and I checked on it recently, they are still open to trading him. This is something if, you know, as we're keeping an eye, obviously on the civil case, the civil cases of the bigger story here, but on the football element here, the Texans are open for business for Deshaun. Mm. So it's just going to be which teams. And, 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 and that's something I, I can't report yet. I don't know who's in for real right now. Are we sure about, about Julio and AJ being the number one duo? Oh yeah. Devonte Smith and Jalen Rager. Calvin Ridley, Alameda Zacchaeus. Yeah, you're right. These are adorable conversations. <laughs> Diana Rossini, I just want to point out one more time. Uh, if it weren't for Diana, we wouldn't even know that Julio got traded. Probably never would have heard about it. Just where I got traded in silence, in my opinion. I was sober when I broke the story. I was tired because I never slept. Mm. And if you could just say Diana's husband, Kevin, is gorgeous and amazing just to help me out. Because Diana's I husband, Kevin, who I was about to... Diana Rossini husband is what I'm going to Google. You know, a lot of guys do this. They, they like to find the creepy pages. Oh, damn. Anyone cute? Yeah, your husband. Oh. <laughs> Go Kev. Shout out to Kevin. Diana, thanks for the time. Keep it up. Keep up the great work. Keep Remember, up the great hey, tweets. It's better to be first than to be right or sober. Yeah, you're right. But just look at fire. that. Hold on. I just want to say this one thing. What a sweet, sweet proposal this was. On the beach, he hit the knee. He's old-fashioned. I don't know if anybody's not hitting a knee these days. But then, you know, the, the, the end of this story is that he just gets drug on national TV. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry to that guy. Kevin? Still Kevin. Yep. He didn't deserve it. <laughs> he didn't deserve I, it, Diana. I said, what'd you think about when I went on GetUp and called you like an average, not attractive person? He's like, I, I really don't care. I don't care. You have a ring on your finger. Like, you obviously think a little bit better than average. Like, yeah, I guess. He's like, now I'm going to go get drunk. I'm like, okay. Like, he literally, <laughs> he's the most chill dude. He is the most him. resilient husband on the Eastern Seaboard. It's amazing. So, big shout out to Kevin. Diana, Hope you come back soon. I'm way too deep into your Google images here. I was looking for your husband. Some of this other stuff. Diana, come yeah. back soon. Love out there, Chris. Guys, thanks for having me on. I love being with you. Thanks for saving my marriage and ruining my reputation again. And no uh, let's, let's do this again. Training camp. Yeah, no problem. What was the most heroic bachelor party effort you ever put in? Vegas. I've done it once. Been Mathern. Um, flight took off about 6 a.m. I was still in the casino about about 4 a.m. Damn. And ATM was like, nah, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'll be it for you. Yeah. Yeah, for like 48 hours. So, uh, yeah, the fellows were on their way to the airport as I was like telling my life story to the, uh, what's the person called? To the... Uh, Cashier? Yeah, ish. Like car dealer type oh, person. Oh, yeah, the dealer. Yeah, the dealer. That's right. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> to the dealer. Yeah, I couldn't play anymore, so we were just talking about our lives. That sounds like a really rough bachelor party. Yeah. Oh, my God. Whoa. But, hey, I put in... Whoa, the you got a notification on your ATM, and you left uh, at 6 a.m. from Vegas. Yeah. I, did, I didn't do you any favors by springing that question on you. 
the one that comes to mind for me is New Orleans. I went down there for Mike Cochran's bachelor party. Uh, the diet <laughs> consists, this was during a bye week. I did a bye week bachelor party, dude, which is aggressive. I actually can't believe that I did this at any point, but I quit the night early. Like I was home at 10 o'clock cause I drank too many hurricanes and all that stuff. We ate so much New Orleans food. I didn't take a shit for seven days. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I made it out, but I didn't really make it out. Like I had New Orleans in my small intestine, large intestine, yeah, all the intestines at Candlestick Park, <laughs> just driving Troy Smith into the ground. Damn, Chris, that really hurt. Yeah, well, I got an extra five pounds of shit from New Orleans in my in my septic. You uh, <laughs> you uh, notched a quarterback sack. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I don't know that game. I think maybe I had one or okay. maybe two halves. At least halves. a quarterback hit. I think I had two halves that game. I played very well that game. But I thought to myself, maybe I should shit less. Right. I played so well. Right. Go to New Orleans more. <laughs> and shit less. Yeah, that was gross. But uh, hope you enjoyed the Diana Rossini interview. And uh, now we've got Mike Chandler, who is a fighter. And I told you about him in the open. Uh, if, you, if you don't follow UFC and that sort of thing. Which I know a lot of you don't because it involves staying up late. And since I became a dad, I just can't do it as much anymore. I'll watch a fight if I'm into it. But it's not like Saturday night's appointment viewing. Mike Chandler is one of the up-and-comers in the UFC. But has a long history in Bellator. Again, to refresh your memory, kind of impromptu. Joined the, uh, the UFC late last year. Got his first fight on short notice. Beat up a top five guy in Abu Dhabi. What was his name? Hooker. Barely knew her. <laughs> I wonder if he brought protection. <laughs> I wonder how his defense was in that fight. The medical checks afterwards were exhaustive. And a couple months later, he fought Oliveira and did not come out on top. And he's just always been super classy guy. Great dude. Knew him from a distance. Now, finally, we're going to talk for a while. And we talked earlier. Hope you guys enjoy this. Again, it's Mike Chandler. You'll see him in the ring very soon. Again, Dana White says he's got some big plans for him. Uh, but for now, sit back, relax, enjoy Mike Chandler. Uh, and after that, you... Are free to go. You're free to go and do whatever it is you do when you're not listening to this podcast for five hours a week. Mike Chandler's with us. This is a guy that we've known each other from a distance for years with the Missouri connection and all that. And I've just loved watching him go about his business in and out of the octagon. One of the the great guys in the sport. Uh, and he's joining us now. Mike, how's it going, brother? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me. This, I feel, feel like this has been a long time coming, so I'm glad we're uh, glad we're making it happen. And it's the perfect time to do it. Dude, it is overdue. And we were just joking because I was like, w what weight class do you prefer? Like, because I know in Bellator, you were like, what, three-time champion in lightweight? Yep. And now in UFC, you're fighting in what, lightweight as well? I'm still lightweight, yeah. But I'm just, I've gotten progressively bigger, but the weight class stays the same. <laughs> I actually wrestled, I wrestled 152 in high school my senior year. And then I wrestled at Mizzou at 157. Now I fight 155, but I've progressively gotten heavier but I've always had to basically make the same weight, so 155 lightweight. And you and you're now in Nashville. You were telling me you just got home. You were out out west 
having a little downtime, it sounded like, and maybe the weight balloons up a little bit when you're just relaxing naturally? Yeah, I mean, just naturally. I mean, my, my body my body doesn't want to be anywhere near the 150s, anywhere near the 160s. I'm really at my happiest when I'm like 185, really. Obviously, right now, after a couple of days of just hanging out in the pool and not doing much, hit 192 this morning. So, uh, you know, we'll be back down in the 80s this week after we get after it a little bit. Well, I guess first off, my question would be, when you go on one of these trips, which is few and far between for you probably, where you can just completely let loose and chill out a little bit, do you feel totally weird not being like a plugged in regimented athlete? Do you feel like something's hanging over your head? Like I, I, I'm not supposed to be relaxing by the pool right now. Yeah. And that's probably one of the most unfortunate things about being a, you know, a pro athlete, but also a pro athlete who has to maintain weight and has to maintain a, a, a healthy body. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm always staying in shape. Obviously I go a week or so here and there where I just say, Hey, I'm taking all the, taking all the breaks off. We're going to have a good time. We're going to hang out. We're going to, you know, we brought a private chef out and not, we didn't bring it with us, but we hired him one or two nights there to like just serve and love on our, our friends that we had out there and just live a little bit more of a less regimented life, if you will. Um, and then after a couple of days, you're like, okay, I need to get back to the gym because there is always that looming, mm-hmm. you know, am I doing, am I doing the right thing right now? Should I be having fun? Should I be enjoying my life? I, I just lost the fight a couple of weeks ago. I shouldn't be enjoying anything right now. You right. know, so it's, uh, it's that fine line between, you know, a little bit of, uh, chaos and a little bit of, uh, you know, psychopathic tendencies, I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, for lack of a better term, you know, where you're just like, man, I, I just want to be in the gym. I want to be doing what I, what I, what I was put on this earth to do. I think ever since I hit 30 years old, I knew I was closer to the end of my career than I was the beginning of my career. So you really start to take a lot of, put a lot of stock in recovery in your body and how long your body lasts, especially in a sport like mixed martial arts where you're getting hit in the head and getting your body beat up. Um, same thing probably with football, I'm sure. So I can remember when I turned 30, it was just like, I can't go out drinking the same as I used to and expect to recover. Like it became glaringly obvious that things that I wanted to recover were not because I'd go out and drink and I'd think like I'm He-Man, I can do what I want. Kind of that wide open mindset. I feel like when you're in your prime and you're young, it's almost nice to have that wide open mindset. It's like good for your psyche. But then for Mm -hmm. me, it was hard to like reel it in and live a very like controlled life off the field and then be out of control on it. Is that something that fighters like have a hard time with because I know you guys live even stricter from a regiment standpoint and a diet standpoint. You got to be so crazy in the ring, but then out of it, you got to be like all controlled and you can't go out and have crazy fun. Yeah. I mean, well, that's always part of it too. I mean, you know, when I think about sports, sports where you don't have to maintain a certain weight, you know, if I weigh 192, it's not a big deal right now, but obviously in training camp, every little, you know, I don't, I don't drink drink alcohol during training camp, which is about a 10 week, 10 week period. I don't have, any refined sugars, refined processed foods, like all that, all that stuff that we all want to enjoy just to feel like normal human beings. Um, it'll throw the whole thing off. It'll throw the whole wagon off the trail and it makes that weight cut very hard, which is, which I, I've been very hard on the, the industry as a whole. Cause everybody talks about how bad weight cutting is and it is, it is bad. We shouldn't dehydrate ourselves, but guys just aren't, from what I've seen, guys just aren't as disciplined enough for an eight to 10 to 12 week period to get their body to where they need to be to make weight as healthily as possible. You know, I, I think there's, there's certain schools of thought that would say the way that we make weight or how, how much weight we lose to get to a certain, 
weight class is always, you know, not healthy, no matter what, no matter which way you look at it. But, um, you know, for me, for me, I take pride in doing things right, doing the small things right, doing, you know, enjoying 10 weeks of doing what 99.9% of people wouldn't be able to do from a discipline standpoint, from a, you know, a pain and a outside your comfort zone standpoint, pushing my body to, to its limits. And then once it's over, win, lose or draw, you know, getting to the fight healthy and being fighting in a big fight. It's all, that's all a win, whether even if you, even if you lose the fight, you know, and now it's yeah. time to be a normal human for a second and then, you know, reel it back in after a week or two. Cause you kind of get, as an athlete too, you understand what your body feels like when you're not doing things like in training camp or doing things right. And then what it does, how great you feel when you are in that, in that thick of a training camp where you wake up, you feel phenomenal and you go to bed feeling phenomenal throughout the day. You might be beat up from leg kicks or getting, you know, hit here and there, or your body's sore, but overall you feel really good. You feel healthy and happy and hard to kill. Yeah, exactly. But with the weight fluctuation, that thing's always fascinated me because you know, the most we ever tried to cut weight or gain weight was five, 10 pounds to make weight over an extensive mm -hmm. period of time. And you guys are cutting what, like how many, what's the craziest amount of weight you've cut to try to get down? Well, so, I mean, I always, I always look at that, that performance night, the fight night a Saturday night. So obviously we make weight Friday morning. The thing is, it's really just water manipulation, really. I mean, I, I'll lose 10 pounds in my one hour workout the night before a fight. Right. Um, and then the next morning I wake up three, three, four pounds over and then cut a and then lose a little bit of weight that morning just by sweating some stuff out, um, just sweating water out. Then you feel horrible for a few minutes. Luckily you step on the scale and then boom, you rehydrate. And then 30 minutes later, you got a gallon of water in, which is eight pounds. So now I'm 163. An hour later after that, I have another gallon of water, which is another eight pounds. So now you're looking at 171 within two, two and a half hours of the weigh-in, you know, so I'm already back in the seventies after two hours of the weigh-in. That's wild. Yeah, you didn't know this. No, from one fifty-five to to one seventy-one in two hours. Yeah, and I got to figure the mental strain of dehydration because you know, like weight loss and weight gain. Y'all are riding that wave constantly in high-pressure situations, not just like sitting on the couch. My favorite part of fight week is Saturday morning when I'm I'm fighting Saturday night. But my yeah. my favorite part of fight week is Saturday morning when I get a workout in because it's a good workout. I'm cracking pads. I'm hitting pads with my, my coach. Cause the one before that, I felt like if you would have thrown me into the cage the night before weigh-ins, I would die after, you know, a couple minutes. Cause I'm depleted. I'm dehydrated. You feel bad. You don't have any cracks in your punches. If I went to go grapple with my training partner, I'm just, just not feeling good. So you, so you go from being in the best shape of your life, then you hit fight week and you're bringing your body down weight wise, which is dehydration and lack of, you know, not, I, I don't never starve myself, but I eat smaller and smaller meals. So my energy levels are low. So it's, you essentially are mind, like the mind game of knowing the way that I feel now on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is not how I'm going to feel on Saturday. When you actually have to perform in front of millions of people on a UFC pay-per-view fighting for the UFC title, which is a crazy high pressure situation. So the best workout is that Saturday morning before to remind yourself, I am fast. I am strong. I am explosive. I am a, I am a good athlete. I'm not the guy that has worked out the last four days going through all the media stuff, fight week stuff, depleting myself and losing all of that feeling like I'm losing all of that talent, if you will. Are you just sparring with self-doubt through the week a little bit? Because even though you know that you're going to get that workout in Saturday morning, the isolation, 
that you know, yeah. and a lot of times you were just in Abu Dhabi fighting, right? Did you you fought all the way over there? I mean, I fought. Yeah, that was that was back in January. That in was my Jan- UFC debut. So not only everything you're just describing, Bree and Hat were not there, right? Obviously, your wife yeah. and 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 your four year old son. And on top of that, like you're dehydrated, you probably your weight's fucked up, and you're you're jet lagged. Like talk about that whole situation. Yeah. So Abu Dhabi was tough. I mean, they built an infrastructure, they built a stadium, they built locker rooms, they put us all in one hotel. All the athletes, all the staff, all security, all the media was all in one hotel. Everybody was tested like nine times in a 10-day period. And yeah, we flew out over there 16 hours. Then we had to quarantine for 48 hours. So we were in our hotel room, stuck in our hotel room for two days straight. Then we could finally get fight week started. So we flew to Vegas. We took a test before. Then we flew to Vegas, took a test. Once everybody was clear, we could get on the plane. Then we flew 16 hours. Then we were in in Abu Dhabi, quarantined in our hotel room for two days. And that's not that big of a deal for certain certain athletic endeavors, but whenever you're trying to cut weight and you need your training partners, you need these workouts, you need to get your sweat in, you need to get your, your cardio up, um, to burn calories, to burn them, to burn and, and shed the water weight. That's a tough situation because you're stuck in a hotel room. What are you jumping days. on the bed? Like what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> well, luckily, luckily I had a, a decent sized room and my manager who's been with me since day one of my fight career, you know, used to wrestle in, in college and, um, he's my size. So we, we hit some pads or hit some mitts together. He had a body protector. I just threw a sweatsuit on sauna suit and just kind of moved around shadow box and punched his body pad for, you know, an hour or two here and there and just tried to keep the weight off. And then we could finally reunite with my coaches and other training partner that I brought there and then get fight week going. But it's like an 11 day process. And actually for that fight, we were a day and a half late because our flight got delayed. I think one of the pilots tested positive for COVID or something. So it was like, it delayed us a whole extra day, day and a half. And then there was essentially, we got there four days before the fight, which is about three days later than we wanted to be. And it was, a, uh, it was one of the toughest weight cuts of my life, but you know, we made it and you know, we got the win and it, it all worked out well, but it was not that fun. <laughs> You're sitting there in that hotel room the day of the fight. You're watching undercards, I assume, maybe in the yeah. hotel. And I just know as a, as, as a football player, the longer the wait, we hate it. Yep. So like if we're doing a Sunday night game or a Monday night game, earlier in my career when I played for the Rams, and you know this well because you knew all about mm-hmm. the Rams, but <laughs> we didn't play in a lot of Sunday or Monday night games. So, yeah. so I used to covet those opportunities and be jealous of those guys. And then when I got to New England and Philly, I was like, what the fuck, man? You just sit around the hotel all day. I get anxious. I yep. hate it. I just want to close the distance. I want to go like, like go hit somebody. And I can only imagine yep. for you that hotel's got to be a pretty lonely place the, the day of, or what are you feeling? Yeah. And, and I think, uh, I guess the way I would, I would like, and it, it, it's tough because I really don't want to watch the fights because if you watch the fights, you almost get thrusted into realizing how tumultuous and unpredictable the sport really is. You know, I mean, my UFC day, my UFC debut against Dan Hooker, I was the underdog. So, you know, it's no big deal, but a lot of my fights, I was, you know, when I was in Bellator, I was the favorite, but you could be a thousand to one favorite and you get clipped on the button. You get an arm, get caught in something weird. You can see in a split second, how the guy who was supposed to win loses. So you you don't want to be watching that as you're going, you know, waiting three, four five, six hours to you go to the arena. It's the reason why my wife doesn't get there until like two fights before me, because if my wife sits there and watches 12 fights before me, she sees all these guys getting knocked out. These guys getting hurt. These guys getting caught. This guy was supposed to win, but he lost. 
And she's like, I can't do it. I just need to, I, if she had it her way, she would time it perfectly for her to walk into the arena as I'm walking out. So she doesn't have to see any of how crazy the sport is, you know, cause right. it, it really is the waiting game. And for her as a wife, it's even probably worse. Cause she's like, I want to drink a glass of wine, but I can't because I didn't eat anything today. Cause my stomach's all messed up. My husband's about to get inside of a cage and fight another man in front of millions of people. And our livelihood is on the line. My world rank is on the line. The future of our finances and, and my standing in the sport is on the line every single time you step into the octagon. So it's just a, it's a crazy sport. I wouldn't change it for the world. I love it, but it's, it's nuts at times. Yeah. I wondered, you know, um, how the relationship, and this goes for female fighters too, obviously, but like spousal relationship where can the wives or the husbands watch at times? Is it like, are there certain spouses that are like, I'm out, dude, I can't. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's, there, I've, I've, spoken or my wife has spoken to a decent amount or I've spoken to other, you know, fighters, guys who say, yeah, my wife doesn't watch or even certain, you know, like wives are close to being in, you know, close to being like in labor. And they're like, she can't take the chance of coming to the arena, getting all excited and like basically pushing this baby out because right. of how crazy, you know, mm-hmm. and that could happen in football as well. I mean, it's, it's a big game. I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's kind of similar, but, but there's a difference. A, y'all, y'all getting knocked out or beat up which I'm using that word, like if I get in a fight at a bar and I lose, I get beat up, you lose a fight. There's a difference to me, like there's nothing embarrassing about what happens in the octagon because you're all warriors and you've opted into something where, like sure, as people on the internet, we can laugh at somebody for getting knocked out, but you've already put yourself out there in a way that like, like on top of everything you've been through, you've put yourself out there in a way that I just wouldn't have the balls to do. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I'll fight somebody in an alley but I don't like fighting in front of an audience. I'll fight anybody in an alley, but I, I just, the embarrassment, perceived embarrassment for me, for you guys, I'm sure it's not quite embarrassment because you've opted into it. Or do you feel that embarrassment? Kind of. I mean, I would say the older I've gotten, the better I've gotten at it. And, and even now, you know, my career was largely outside the UFC. I fought in Bellator, which actually now, I actually enjoy my, my UFC career much more than I did even the 10 years before this in Bellator because I always had something to lose when I was fighting in Bellator. Always had something to lose because I was usually the, the, the favorite. I was usually the world champion or I was the guy who was supposed to be winning. Now I've been the underdog in my first fight in the UFC. I was an underdog in this last fight in the UFC. So I wouldn't say that I fought with nothing to lose, but there is kind of that air of enjoyment because it's like, man, supposedly to the masses, I'm not even supposed to be here. You know, when I got right. to the UFC, everybody said I was the outsider, the, the, you know, the, the B league guy who came out, came in from outside the UFC. And I come in and, and knock out number five in my first fight, which is great. Um, got the opportunity to fight for the world title. But even now it's, I've gotten better at, towards the, the second half of my career, because I do realize that failure is an event, not a person. You know, when I lost my first couple, my first fight, it turned into numerous losses after that, because, I felt like I was the failure when really, am I really a failure? If I put myself out there and I lost in a fight against another world-class guy, not really. Of course I want to win. Of course I, I do things right. And I make the requisite sacrifices in order to be a champion in order to be the best guy in the world. So when I lose, it's a huge disappointment, but I've gotten to the point in my career now where it's, you're fighting the best guys in the world, man, you're going to lose. Nobody, nobody stays undefeated in this sport for the most part. And uh, that's kind of a freeing, mentality to have if you will because it's you know you can't expect to win every single time even now coming off of a loss i'm excited to get back in there win lose or draw it doesn't matter because now i'm, I'm pretty much fighting on borrowed time I'm, I'm enjoying the process i still think i'm going to be a world champion even if i have a loss 
the losing thing is really fascinating to me because I already I already let you in on the fact that like one of my biggest in- insecurities would be getting knocked out in front of people and that sort of thing. It's just a fucking primal thing you don't want to happen. Yeah. And then you guys have to go out and do that on top of all the other stuff. But I guess I wonder then that losing streak you talked about earlier, that compounded, it was bad in the beginning. Like you said, you, I, I think I've read where you said you hit a little bit from the media and that sort of thing. Yeah. Does that yeah. compound or is, was that just the way you were or it just was a bad streak? I think it was just, I wasn't prepared to lose. I was, I was building up my body, my physical body. I could do, you know, I could do the sparring rounds and the wrestling rounds and grappling rounds. I could get stronger in the gym. I could become a better athlete. So I was building up a physical body that wasn't able to handle a loss mentally. So I wasn't ready for the loss. When I, when I did have my first loss, as you said, yeah, I mentioned I, I hid from I hid from the media. I wanted to hide myself, wanted to be secluded within my my own house, within my four walls where it was safe. And a lot of it probably had to do with ego because I, I didn't want people to perceive me as a loser. I didn't want people. I didn't want to feel that awkwardness of me walking into a room and then people looking at me as if I was the guy who just got knocked out in front of millions of people, which you know now just happened a couple of weeks ago. But now I look at it like it's. Like, man, you know, you mentioned it a second ago, like I am the guy in the arena. You know, I, I was the guy who put myself out there. And truthfully, there's probably a lot of people who wish they were able to do what I do. And I think I, I, the gratitude that I operate with right now, realizing that I do have a great crowd of witnesses. I do have a very large platform. I do have a, an awesome opportunity and some amazing gifts that God has given me. Now I'm able to just use that win, lose, or draw. And there's a lot of really great things that have come with this loss. I think me even having the opportunity to grow, you know, I did a, a podcast the Monday morning after the Saturday loss, after the Saturday knockout, after the Saturday embarrassment in front of millions of people on, uh, and, and then obviously now it's 2021. So they live on YouTube. It lives on your phone. There's highlights everywhere. You shout know, you out, shout out busting with the boys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What I did. And, and that was a thing. Cause I, and I actually texted Will, one of the, one of the hosts of busting with the boys. And I was just like, you know, he, he wasn't expecting her to hear from me. And I was like, Hey man, we're still on for 10. Right. He's like, yeah, are you sure you want to, yeah, you, as long as you're cool with it. I'm like, yeah, of course I am. Like my appearance on the podcast was not, was not predicated on winning the fight, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's not to toot my own horn. I think the old me would have probably canceled that, you know, podcast on busting with the boys. But I think I needed to get off. I needed to get out there and, and rip off the bandaid. And that was for me selfishly to just be able to move forward and say, Hey, it was something that happened a couple nights ago, but now I'm going to move forward. And the people who can see the way that I handle it, maybe they needed to hear these things and maybe they needed to, um, needed to see my story and then be able to grow from it. And, you know, that's a beautiful platform that I've been given. And I'm not going to rob a people of that by me hiding in my selfishness and in my ego within my four walls. And then I'm also going to remember how good I am just just because I lost the fight doesn't mean I'm not good. And I'm also going to not blame anybody else. It was me who lost the fight. It was me who, who had my right hand down. I got caught with a left hook and boom, it's over. You know, I got to take that accountability and now I can move forward. I thought that was a really, a big move of you. You know, like, I, I don't know how regular that is. And I think that's why, like, when I saw that you were going on with them, I was like, I, I really want to ask him about losing because it's the other side of the coin. You know, it, it just is. And, and I look at that and, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I see guys after fights giving interviews and you talked after the Oliveira fight. How hard is that to do? Because, you know, I know there's some, some, hey, how should we do this? Guys just got 
hit on the chin. I don't want to put a microphone in their face, but like, are you, are you good to go? Like, how does that work? I think, I think, and I don't know if it was planned that they were going to, you know, um, put the microphone in my, in my face or, or if Joe Rogan was going to for sure interview me, but I don't know if they just saw the way that I was, you know, cause you could probably be in there in the moment and say, okay, this guy is with it or he's not with it, yeah. you know, and, and Joe being the professional that he is doing it now for decades can know whether or not he should stick a microphone in the guy's face. And he must've saw that I was, you know, I was there, I was okay. It seemed like I was going to be able to do a halfway cognizant, you know, speech, or at least, uh, you know, a, a, a halfway cognizant, you know, on the microphone post-fight interview. Um, and they made the decision, which I'm, I'm glad they did. Cause it just gave, it gives you another opportunity. I mean, there's, there's really, there's so much power and so much ability and so much, excitement when it, when you can jump on the cage and do a backflip and have the American flag, get the belt put around your waist. That's so great. That's what we, that's what we train for. That's what we do. But then there's something so beautiful and pure about that post-fight interview where I'm sweating and I might got a black eye and I'm bleeding and I just lost. There's that loss. There's the belt not around my waist. There's the vision that will live on the internet as well of the loser being on the microphone, having an opportunity to say something after he lost, because that's not something that a lot of people are, I think, uh, familiar with, you know, when we, when we lose, whether it's business, whether it's in your professional life, in your relationships, when we lose, we have, we all have different ways of dealing with it and to be able to, or even have the blessing or the platform of stepping into the spotlight after a huge loss like that. And then seeing people see how you react to it. That's a blessing that I don't take lightly because I think that's just as important as winning, you know, and I've had a lot of people say, man, the way that you've handled this has got me, got me even more pumped about pumped up about your return and that you will become UFC champion because of the way that you handled this loss. And then even in the back, I shower up and I put my clothes back on and I got my coaches there, my managers and my wife, my mom and dad, and three, four, five of them were silent, but a couple other ones, you know, managers were like, Hey man, let's just go to the hotel. And then, Wife was like, Hey, you know, let's go to the hotel. And I'm like, no, it's time to go do the press conference. Mm. Doing the press conference doesn't, you don't do the press conference just because you won. You do the press conference because you are a professional fighter and you're the man in the arena, win, lose, or draw. Went there and did the, the press conference. And I think it was a great press conference. And there's going to be a lot of tidbits that are going to be used when I do win that UFC title that they're going to be able to pull from, you know, they are going to be able to use that post-fight interview. The win back when I knocked out Dan Hooker with the American flag pumped up you know, surprise, surprise, they can use that. And they can also use the, me banging my head on the microphone. Like, I can't believe I just lost when I had this huge opportunity. That's what people live for. That is sports. People love sports and they're drawn to sports because of the ups and the downs. And they probably enjoy the ups a lot more than they do your downs, but it's, it's during the down times, the bad times, the falling short that people love you even more when you win. And I think that's just all part of the story. It's all part of the journey with the head trauma, with the concussions, you know, something we always worry about. We can count our concussions. Can y'all count your concussions? Or are they like, I don't know. I, Cause I feel like I every feel time y'all got hit, I'm like, that looks like a concussion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Guys still fighting. Can we get to, yeah. Can we get a concussion protocol up in there? Yeah, dude. <laughs> What's going on there? Yeah. No, I mean, we, I mean, I still to this day think I haven't had any, you know, I'm going, I'm st sticking with zero. <laughs> it's a great, it's the best joke I've heard on this whole podcast. Yeah, exactly, right? No, but I mean, uh, and you can see it in football too. You can see when a guy gets hit and he goes down, you can see the way his hand is, the way his arm is, yeah. whether they go limp, whether they tense up. You're like, okay, that guy got knocked out or he got his bell rung. Is that a, con you know, if he got knocked out, obviously it's probably a concussion. And if, if I get TKO'd, it's probably a, a concussion, you know, and you got the, 
the doctor's there and they put the the flashlight in your eyes and you get suspended for 60 days or whatever it might be, no contact for 60 days, 90 days. There's no protocols. I have, I did see a, uh, I thought I saw a headline that some athletic commission is going to start bringing in concussion protocols or something like that, which is probably a, a, a part of the sport that we need to bring in maybe. Yeah. Do people yeah. get dinged in training? Is there a big trust factors? Like we can't have some asshole in our gym lighting up the guy that's getting ready to fight or do you have to worry about getting dinged in the weeks before a fight? You do. And that's where, that's where kind of the, um, I guess the, the veteranship of mixed martial arts comes in. And even me, I mean, the hard, the hardest thing about mixed martial arts that I, that, and that's why I've tried to be pretty kind of funny and, and kind of, um, just more lighthearted than a lot of fighters. It's like, dude, we fight in a cage for a living. We, yeah. we, we literally fight in a cage for money. So you don't need to prove how tough you are. You know, you don't need to prove that you're a, a, one of the toughest dudes on the planet. It, it gets shown every single time you step inside the octagon or every single time you post a training video, people know how tough you are. Yeah. So one of the greatest things about being a veteran or a, a world champion like myself is when I'm, when I walk into the gym, I don't, I can choose who I want to go with. You know, I know the guys that I avoid in the gym and I know the guys that I want to go with because the most important thing is actually getting to the fight healthy. The most important thing is actually getting to fight and actually being able to make a paycheck for your family. Um, so I pick and choose my sparring partners. I, I pick and choose the ones that are always going to push me. But there's that fine line between pushing you and being extremely safe. You know, one cut or one ding, um, one weird injury because a guy was going a little bit too hard that day, you know, takes food off the table for my family. Um, so I get to pick and I will pick and choose my guys. And I always tell these young fighters that you don't need to prove how tough you are. This, this whole sport, this whole career is, is a marathon, not a sprint. And that's why I've always chosen, you know, at least since the last couple of years, making sure I'm going and choosing the right guys. And I say no to people, a guy will come up to me and he might be a brand new guy at the gym. Who's probably wanting to train with me. And I'm like, no man, no thanks. You, you know, can just I'll see maybe. in his eyes or you've watched him spar with somebody else. No, it's, it's, well, it's more just like, not to sound like arrogant, but it's like, I don't know you. I don't love you. And I don't trust you. Those are like my three things. And I know, I know the guys on my dream who I know, love and trust. And the knowing and the loving are very important. And it's, and you can only trust them when you know them and love them. And in our, in our team, um, obviously we have new guys coming in all the time. I don't go with any of the new guys. I will, tr I will tr drill with and, and maybe wrestle with or, or grapple with. But when it comes to punching and kicking and kneeing and elbowing, no, I ain't trying to, I ain't trying to catch a knee from some, you know, new guy who just came to the gym who could, you know, post on social media that he caught me with a knee and knocked me out. It's like like Macon. You know, if Macon was yeah, in your Macon. gym, you're not fighting Macon. No, see, like Macon, I would Macon would walk up to me. I'd say, "No, Macon, kick rocks, bro." <laughs> well, what if I told you six foot four, one sixty two? Does that change your mind at all? Dang, dude, that's you, six four, one sixty two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just did our combine here recently. We did like an NFL combine a couple uh, weeks ago, and he had some really impressive numbers. You mentioned the marathon, not a sprint thing. Was there ever a time in Bellator, like I just referenced earlier, all the success you had there? I mean, you're like undefeated at like in 2012 or 2013. You're now a 35 year old dude. Yeah, 35. Yeah, okay, and you get your first shot in UFC. One mm -hmm. was there a time where you were like, "I'm getting impatient," and two, is it so much of a young man's game? Do you feel like you have a long runway ahead of you? To I know you mentioned kind of like the time is now, but how long do people fight? 
Well, actually, those are two really good questions. So essentially, the way it worked, the way it worked was, I mean, it's essentially just like a, I guess it's just like an NFL contract, I would imagine. Like, yeah. if you want to go to, if you want to go to another team, you can go to another team. You just have to play out your contract, right? right? Is that pretty much how it works? I mean, that's what I did every single time. I never actually became a free agent. So the UFC was never able to come right. pluck me and pull me away. Because truthfully, I was getting, I was, I was living a, a, a good life in Bellator. I was, I was one of the, one of the better paid guys in the lightweight division in Bellator. I was the face of the organization. I was building up my resume. I was fighting, um, you know, fighting a couple times a year, and I was enjoying what I was doing. I liked, I liked being a part of one of the, the trailblazers of an organization. Um, you know, if, if the Bellator didn't have my fight with Eddie Alvarez and then my second fight with Eddie Alvarez, two of the, two of the best fights the Bellator will ever have. Uh, in the history of the organization, maybe Bellator isn't where they are today. So I feel like I've, I helped trailblaze that organization. And I never actually became a free agent because every time my contract was about to be up, they gave me another offer. I, or, or I essentially said, hey, this is what I want. This is what I need. This is how many fights. This is how much you know money. And then they always pretty much said yes. So I never really tested free agency until um, about a year ago. Whenever I was, I made the decision, okay, I'm going to fight out this contract. I'm fighting Benson Henderson, my last fight on my contract, August of last year. And then as soon as, as soon as that fight was over, I knocked him out. Then we went into free agency after a couple of weeks. And then I, you know, made the decision to talk to the UFC and a couple of other, other organizations, but I knew the UFC was where I wanted to go. Um, so the decision was pretty easy, but then it's, then it becomes, okay, you left the, you left the relative security of Bellator where you probably could have fought the rest of your career, been taken care of and be very comfortable but i took a chance on myself went to the ufc fought the best guys in the world and if that you know if that roadblock happens you hit a wall you're going to look back saying man i should have stayed with bellator but right. obviously it's working out it's working out extremely well now and to the longevity thing i do think that mixed martial arts is not as young as much of a young man's game as people think it is. I think, I think I didn't really truly feel like a man, feel like an athlete in this sport at the highest level till I hit 30, 31, 32. And I think I'm still in my athletic prime. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way that I train. Um, but man, when it comes to speed, quickness, um, strength, explosiveness, I still feel like at 35 years old, I'm more of all of those things than I was at 25 years old. So I still feel like the best shape of my life. Um, my joints feel great. My body feels great. I take care of my body and I think I still got two to five more years left of high, high level training. And at some point I'll win the UFC title. What's the biggest difference in just the structure of the two leagues or, you know, um, fighting organizations? Is there, is there a big showbiz difference, like a promotional kind of difference? Yeah. I mean, th that's really the biggest thing is the UFC is just so much bigger. Uh, and mainly because they, they invest so much money into promotion. They invest so much money into the shows. They invest so much money into the staff. I mean, the UFC has hundreds of people on staff. They have 50 security guards on a security staff at each of these events that, that they have in-house, that they travel from Vegas or around the country, around the world, really, to the UFC events. Um, they're so overstaffed compared to other organizations and not just Bellator. I've been around other organizations as well when I've cornered people and just, you know, there's, there's someone who you can call about every single aspect of fight week, whether it be media, whether it be PR, whether it be the UFC PI weight cutting, nutrition, supplementation, weight cutting, all that kind of stuff, all the way to the makeup artists, to the, you name it. There's just, everything is just bigger, bigger, bigger. And I feel like that's one thing that I love about what Dana White has done 
he's really tried to build the UFC as a global worldwide brand. And then he has invested all the money. He has spent all the time, all the sleepless nights to build the organization and the other, other organizations around the world, the other MMA organizations can really just show up and open an arena, throw on it, throw in a cage. And then people will, people will watch because of what the UFC has built. And that's, you know, kind of just my, uh, my view of, of how the industry has, has worked. And I've, I've really enjoyed being part of the UFC because they really do do it. They do it the best. Um, and it's the ultimate proving grounds for mixed martial arts. If you are the UFC champion, you're the number one guy in the world, but nobody outside the UFC will ever be the number one guy in the world. And that's maybe that's my personal opinion, but yeah. I've been outside the UFC and, and I can see the shoe being on both feet. And I kind of see both sides of the industry. The way, the way the UFC has tried to globalize or, you know, as you, uh, alluded to with Dana, is there kind of an up and coming region when it comes to globally? Like you're like that fight scene over there is awesome. And we're going to see a lot more guys and girls coming out of that area. Um, it's, it's interesting. Cause there's, there's all the ebbs and flows. I mean, obviously they're like Brazil used to be the right. biggest country. I mean, at one point there were so many Brazilian champions. I mean, the U S it's growing exponentially in the U S massively mainly because the ufc is, a, is an american organization they do they do the majority of their shows here but you see in a lot of other organizations um there's a lot of russians who are like in pfl a lot of russians who are now in bellator russians are so all the eastern the eastern european european the eastern block, block just those dudes yeah, scare eastern me block, i don't know yeah, a just, bunch of fedors remember that guy yeah, fedor <laughs> yeah so i i, I fought on the same card as i fought i fought in bellator with fedor like two or three different what's he cards all right what's he like dude He's quiet. He's, he's got to be quiet. Guy. He's so quiet. He's, he's the quietest guy ever, but he's, it's cool because he doesn't really speak English. So his, his translator will be like, Hey, he's, you know, he, he wants, you know, we like, we have taken some pictures together and it's like, and then his translator was like, you know, Fedor wants to take a picture with you. He's, you know, fan of you. I'm like, Fedor's what? fan of me. Like what? Fedor? <laughs> but he won't tell you cause he's so quiet, but he's, he's really cool to be around. Cause it's, it's just, there's this aura about him and there's all of the, like, he's fought for so many years and he's got the, you know, I'm a quiet Russian thing going for him where you're just, you're like, okay, this, this guy's got something about him. Cause he's so quiet, you know? And then, uh, he's friends with Vladimir Putin and like all that kind of stuff. So you're just like, this dude's quiet. He freaking beats people up in a cage big time. And, uh, and he's a legend. He's, he's literally a legend, you know? So it's, it's cool to be around him. And it, for all those years, when it, wherever he was in Bellator, the last like five years. So, and he was um, fighting in the days where they had like geese and shit. Like people were, we're beating each other up in the full garb. Yeah. So, well, he started, he started as Russian Sambo, which Russian Sambo, they wear those keys and you can grab the key and you can do submissions. You can punch, yeah. kick, knee, elbow. That's kind of where, that's where Khabib Nurmagomedov started. Like that mm -hmm. Sambo is one of the big um, sports over in Russia. And then he, then he fought through the pride era. Pride was an organization. They fought in Japan and they fought in the, the ring where it had the look like a boxing ring. Yeah. And you could do full on soccer kicks to the head. They had, you know, not much, not many rules, you know? Uh, so it, that mystique part of his aura, the fact that he was one of the trailblazers of the very beginning of the sport makes him even that much more of a legend. And the fact that he's pretty much still fighting now is pretty crazy. So. I want to talk about Mike Chandler's aura here. Cause, uh, okay. a mutual friend of ours, Justin Wren, you know, uh, speaks incredibly highly of you as, and I already know this just from knowing you from a distance, but Justin's like one of the true good guys, one of the best people in fighting in any league in on any level. 
And uh, I wonder how hard that is to square. And I know, because Justin's a great guy too, but you guys yep. have to beat animals in that ring and you have to and you have to promote you have to do some you know i i might not like this guy you don't seem like a guy that hates people you don't seem like a guy that can find a way to hate people how hard is it to do that promotional side of it uh i mean i will say i i've tried to do it in the past where you you know they're like hey hype up this thing or hype up that thing you know back in bellator i fought there was two brothers the pitbull brothers and i knocked out the 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 brother who was 155 and the 145 er was coming up and they're like, Hey, you know, play the whole, I beat up your brother thing. And I'm just like, man, that stuff doesn't really, doesn't really resonate with me. And, and honestly, the real reason going back to why I didn't go to the UFC years prior, you know, I could have went to the UFC two years ago or four years ago, but I just, I saw the direction that the sport was going in. And I just said that, that guy, I don't want to be that guy. That was when Connor came on. And then all of a sudden there was this, Everybody tried to emulate Connor. Everybody thought, okay, if I get on the microphone and I say dumb stuff or I, I say something witty or I make, make people laugh or I, I dress a certain way, I act a certain way, I, I put on this tough guy routine that I can make not just the UFC a bunch of money, but it's going to make me more money. And I just saw the direction that, that the UFC was going in. I saw the direction the sport was going in. And I was just like, man, I don't want to have to go. I don't want to go over to the UFC and have to change who I am. And then the first time I sat down with Hunter Campbell, who is the general counsel of the UFC, Dana White, like he's the yeah. he's number two in command, essentially. Yeah. He's the guy who, who can make everything happen just like Dana can, essentially. Sat down with him, and then Dana called me, and then had these conversations, and they were just like, because Dana, Dana's, the first thing he said to me was like, dude, I don't know what you're saying to my people, but my people are absolutely over the moon about you. Like, we want you, you we, we need to figure out a way to get you to get the UFC. So that right there made me think, okay, shoot, maybe they, maybe this, I don't want to say nice guy or respectable guy or whatever I am. I'm just being me. I'm being yeah. unapologetically and authentically me and it's working, you know? It used to annoy me as a football player sometimes to be like the good guy that does charity work that people are like, yeah. because I also play a sport that's conflict centered, you know, mm -hmm. like, and you play Boy, an and ultimate conflict centered sport. And so you're kind of, you're wearing two hats and it's easy to wear those two hats. Cause if you can, you, you know, the difference between inside the ring and out of the ring. But it's yeah. still, su I mean, at times, if people are like, oh, that's the good guy. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know. I enjoy it because as long as, you, as long as you show them that you live on two opposite ends of the spectrum, they love you on both sides of it. As long as you entertain them and you beat the crap out of people and you're entertaining, <laughs> you're fun to watch, like the actual sport of it, as long as you, as long as you perform in the sport of it, they're going to love you whether you're the nice guy, the, the not so nice guy, whatever, whatever you are in the outside the cage realm, they're going to like you for it as long as you perform inside the octagon. And that's what I've grown to realize being in the UFC, it, it being that much bigger. People have enjoyed the way that I speak, the way that I talk, the things that I post, the things that I do. I've, a lot of people have enjoyed it and it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. People are going to call me fake. People are going to say, I'm trying to be a motivational speaker. People are going to say Chandler speaks in, soliloquies and motivational quotes. You speak inside, I don't even know what a soliloquy is. I don't know what it is. It's kind of a, it's a cool, it's a cool word, but I don't think like Macon, poem. I don't think Macon knows what it is. Do you know it's what like a, a soliloquy is? This is a serious question, but it's not going to sound <laughs> like one. He doesn't know. He's a smart guy. Doesn't does know. it, does it hurt? Does it hurt to get hit? Because I think that's the only thing holding me back from, from making this a career for myself. No, it, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't actually. It's a good question. Cause everybody's like, how do you like, how do you deal with the pain? And I'm like, honestly, thank God, you know, adrenaline's a heck of a drug. Like you, you step into that octagon and you don't feel a thing, you know, you really don't. Um, Tordal which is works great because obviously, 
<laughs> your face, your face is all jacked <laughs> up and eyes are bleeding. You're bleeding out of your nose, but you don't feel any of that until about 12 hours later when it all starts to wear off. So what if you go out drinking, Mike, if you go out drinking after a after fight, the next morning you wake up, you probably feel like death times four. Well, that's one thing that that's one thing I, I, I have a, a rule. Like if I, if I get hit in the head, if, if I have a hard yeah. fight at all, anything aside from me going out there, one punch knocking a guy out. If I take a couple shots where I'm like, okay, I got hit. I don't drink anything for a couple of days, you know, like I, even, even after a win, and that's the hardest part. It's like, everybody's having a good time. They want to celebrate the win. And I'm like, I'll take a, a club soda, you know, <laughs> just cause I want to, I want to try to long, you know, have longevity in the sport as long as I can. And obviously, you know, getting hit in the head is, is, and then drinking is not the best thing to do. So he's got the um, vocabulary of a motivational speaker. He obviously takes care of his brain. And I always wondered that I, Mike, I always wondered that. Like I watch guys on TV. I'm like, yeah, he won, but he took some shots. Is he out there with the sparklers in the club? And I'm, you know, it's <laughs> nice to hear that at least somebody's thinking about that. The one law, it yeah. sounds like UFC and you have a good relationship, Bellator and you good relationship, I'd say overall. Yeah. Still, okay. still a great relationship. Yeah. yeah. So, so the one, the, we talked about losses that you could take earlier, but the primus loss, which I, you know, I didn't mm-hmm. see that in real time, but you know, I was reading about, there was one loss you had that, uh, you weren't messed up. You say you weren't messed up. They pulled the stool out from under you or something. What happened there? How do you take that uh, well, loss? Well, that was, yeah, that was just the New York state athletic commission is not so great. Like they, they've had numerous fights. The doctors are really overzealous to stop fights because of cuts. They're over they're They're a little bit, they're very boxing heavy. The New York state athletic commission just sanctioned boxing. I think like six, eight years ago, it wasn't a very long time ago. Um, Cause that was the big thing. Everybody's like, when is MMA going to New York? And for the longest time they wouldn't sanction it. That was just a, that was a commissioner and that, and that video, that little gif and the video is going to live on the internet forever of me, like standing up and I'm like trying to get the crowd into it. I'm like, let's keep going. And I go back to sit in the stool and little do I know the commissioner who should have known that the doctors weren't letting the fight go on. For some reason, the guy pulls the stool and Charlie Brown's me. And like, I sit down and land right on the, right on the canvas. I look at him like, are you serious, dude? Like, not only is this fight about to end, I'm about to lose this fight in front of millions of people. We're at Madison Square Garden, the mecca, like the greatest opportunity of my life at fighting at Madison Square Garden. And you want to pull the stool out from under me, bro? Like right now? That's unbelievable. <laughs> That's unbelievable. And so they, so they, you lost on account of sitting down. So sort of or really, sort of not? Because it was well, already, they were going to call it already. I, I think they were going to call it already. That was just more insult to injury, more like embarrassment. You know, it wasn't, <laughs> Because there was a lot of people who were like, hey, man, you need to appeal the loss. You need to appeal the loss because they called it off right after you fell. And it looked like you had a broken leg or your leg wasn't working. So you fell. And I'm like, no, I just went to sit back down on the stool that I was 99.9% positive was there. It would have been there in any other state, any other athletic commission. But old Joe Schmo over here pulled the stool out from under me. And yeah, it, it, was, it was a non-issue in the actual uh, calling of the fight. It was more just embarrassing, but now it's more just funny because I'm like, I'm that guy who got the stool pull. I mean, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan has talked about it on his podcast. It's the biggest podcaster of all time. Has talked about it numerous times on his podcast. It's just like, so it's part hey, of it. it's, it's part of the journey part of now. Of it. It's part of the journey yeah. now. What's what's next for you? Because I, you know, I've heard, um, you know, the name Gaethje thrown out. I think Dana mm-hmm. White had volunteered. Maybe that some big things were in line for you. So, what do you think's next? Yeah. So, I mean, as of right now, we're still a couple weeks post fight. So we're, you know, my, my management's giving me time to just hang out. The UFC has called me and said, Hey, you know, 
you're right there. You're right there with those guys. Great fight. Thanks for putting on a great fight and a, and a big fight down in Houston. You know, we'll figure out what's next for me, you know, longevity wise and just health wise. I want to take a, you know, take the summer off and keep training and, and, and getting better and probably not get back into the cage again until this winter time, at least, you know, um, timing with Justin Gaethje might not work out because he needs to, he needs to, he needs to fight. He hasn't fought since last October. There's Benil Darius who's ranked ahead of me. Essentially, it's got to be somebody who's ranked ahead of me. I want to fight somebody. I'm number four, which is essentially number five because there's the champion. And then, it, then it's uh, Poirier, Gaethje, Benil Darius, me. So it needs to be probably Benil Darius or Justin Gaethje. One of those guys who, who a win over them gets me right back into the title hunt because that's what I want to do. I want to win that UFC title before I'm done. If not, I'll just go up to 170 and stop cutting weight. And you like <laughs> all these guys. I mean, they're, they're all right. I mean, I, I, they're my fellow competitors. I got nothing against any of them, man. To me, it's, to me, I don't, I don't look across the octagon and see a, a person. I just see two arms and two legs. Uh, and I go, you know, like yeah. it's probably the, you know, the same thing, you know, if you get focused on the individual, I'm sure it's probably happened on the football field. If you get focused on the individual hurting the individual up until the point of actual, right before you make the contact where you can like maybe dig them into the ground a little bit, lawn dart them a little bit. You're really going to, you're going to underperform, right? So I don't try to focus too much on any kind of animosity or anything that guy said to me or anything the media said, anything the fans have said, just focus on going out there and doing a job. They're all great. The lightweight division is the most exciting division in the UFC right now. My name is right there in the mix, obviously, because I just fought for the title and I'm now kind of solidified myself as one of the top guys. So fight one of the top five guys and, and uh, beat him and then go win the title middle of next year. And Gaethje also has a big wrestling background as well, right? Yep, he was a Division One All-American. So so when two wrestlers, you know, are, is there a part of the fan base that's kind of lazy and just wants to see people strike each other? And then when, when two wrestlers are, might be fighting, is there like a, you know, hey, how do we convince you guys that there's a lot of technique here that you should be cued in on? And I don't care if these guys weren't, punching each other in the face for, you know, the entirety of the fight. Yeah. I mean, that's the hard part about MMA. Like people, people just want to see blood and, 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 you know, knock down drag out wars. And that's the beauty of it. I mean, I, luckily I, I like to engage in that kind of hand to hand combat. I'm not afraid to go out there and, and fight fire with fire, but yeah, Justin Gates was a division wrestler. He doesn't use his wrestling a ton. Honestly, he's, okay. he's more of a guy who loves to brawl. He loves to strike. He loves to. So when it comes to the wrestling aspect of it, I think I'm, you know, I think I'm a decent amount better than him when it comes to wrestling, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean I necessarily just want to wrestle him. You know, right. I think if I want to go for a takedown, I think I can get one, but I also want to, I want to knock him out. You know, like I want to make him part of my highlight reel. Uh, that's what I said. Somebody's getting made part of the other guy's highlight reel. Someone's probably getting knocked out in that fight. And I, I ain't afraid for it to be me. And I ain't going to fight like I'm afraid for it to be me. And it's going to be, it'll be a, it'll be a good fight. And the winner of that will probably get the next title shot. And I just, Hope that it's me. Is this going to be a little different for you now from a UFC standpoint? I mean, Bellator, you probably always knew what was ahead of you, but you've been the guy and you've been proud to say it in recent memory. Is like, I'll take a fight. Like, I'll take a fight, you know, uh, I don't know, a month or two out or a couple weeks out or something. Do you think it's harder for you or harder for the guy that doesn't know what's coming until three weeks ahead? I mean, it's for both of you guys. Yeah, it it really, it it doesn't, yeah. Both guys, because everybody always... Obviously, there's the training aspect. If I've been training for, for a certain date for eight weeks, um, obviously, there's the, the mystique or the perception that, hey, this, this other guy took the fight on short notice. He's only got three weeks to prepare right. while the other guy had eight weeks. But truthfully, 
the clock stops and starts over whenever you get a new opponent. So you could be training for eight weeks to be fighting a, a striking heavy guy. And then if they switch it up on you at the last minute and you're fighting a guy in two weeks, who's now a grappling guy, really your whole, your whole training camp, you might be in shape, but you weren't, you weren't preparing as if you were fighting that style of guy. So I think the guy who's been training longer, you know, like you go back, you remember the George Masvidal taking the fight on seven days notice yeah. against Kamaru Usman, you know, Kamaru Usman really, you know, nobody gave him, him credit. The fact that he was putting his UFC title on the line to fight a guy who had nothing to lose, who was coming in on seven days notice. And yeah, he had to cut weight and yeah, he had to drop the weight a lot more than Kamaru did. But Kamaru Usman also had all the pressure, had a brand new opponent, had a brand new, a brand new fight ahead of him that he was preparing to fight someone else. And a lot of times those guys don't get as much credit as the guys who are coming in on short notice, mainly because they're usually quote unquote would be more out of shape, but really you're fighting a guy at a high level. You're fighting a world-class athlete. So whether you have three weeks to prepare or 10 weeks to prepare, the new change of the opponent is essentially starting of a new clock and you have to find a new way to win the fight. What'd you learn in film study when you're getting ready to fight uh, in, in January? Is a shorter run for you? And I know that like film is a big, big part of what you guys do. I mean, really, I was just down in Florida preparing because, you know, I came into the UFC and nobody wanted to fight me. Essentially, everybody inside the top five said no to a fight against me because, I, truthfully, and, and I, I don't blame them, I probably would have done the same thing. Everybody had everything to lose and nothing to gain because I was the outsider, the dark horse, the no name, all the different superlatives that people called me. And then I come in and, and Dan Hooker was the guy who did finally say yes, um, which I, I tip my hat to him because without him saying yes to that fight, I don't know where I would be right now. I still don't know if I would have a fight. I would have to fight number 20. Right. I don't know who would have actually said yes. But really, yeah, just watching. I mean, Dan Hooker was a long, long, tall guy. I mean, it was, he was a tall test literally and figuratively because he was 6'1", and he had just went 25 minutes with Dustin Poirier. He had just went 25 minutes before that with Paul Felder. He, he had never been knocked out to the head. Um, he had been knocked out with a body shot, but never been knocked out with it to the head. So I knew he was tough. I knew he was game. He was a tough New Zealander. Um, and then really, I was just watching film on Gaethje, watching film on could have been Poirier, could have been Ferguson. It could have been any of the guys. So really, I was watching film and I was focusing 80% of my training, 90% of my training on what can I do to be successful? What's the easiest path to victory against any of these guys? And most of the time, that's just me being you know, unapologetically exactly who I am, which is come across the octagon and get into a fist fight. One of those guys that come across the octa octagon and get in a fist fight guy, at least I just know this because Tyron Woodley's from St. Louis and we popped in his gym once or twice and he was very proud to say like, I just like unloading on people, <laughs> you know, like he's yeah. aggressive and uh -huh. he's getting ready to fight one of the Paul brothers in August. And I wonder where you are yeah. on these novelty fights. I think as long as people don't look at them as legitimate sporting events. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I mean, it's a sport. Like what, what is the definite, what does Webster's Miriam dictionary de define the word sport as sport, you know, two teams or one person versus another person and engaging in a certain game that has rules and it has a scoring system. Right. So technically it is a sport. It's, it's athletics, but it's, it's for show. It's for pay-per-view. It's for money. I mean, look at Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather just made millions and millions of dollars to fight a YouTuber and there are a lot of people saying, man, you know, hats off to, to Logan Paul for surviving when, you know, you know, Mayweather probably carried him. And I didn't, I didn't see the fight. Floyd, um, Floyd, but, Floyd knocked him out at one point, I think, and held him up. Did the same yeah, thing like, he was doing when he was boxing. He's just thinking yeah, about the exactly. next check. But, yeah. you know, yeah, I, 
I guess I was, listen, anybody would, for the purses these guys, these YouTuber guys are taking home, anybody would get in there in the ring with, I don't know, it was Mike Tyson, I don't give a fuck. 100%. 100%. You know, but, which by the way, hey, what's your, what's your nickname? Iron Michael Chandler. And what do you think about that, Macon? He said Iron Michael, totally fine. Oh, it's totally uh, fine now. Yeah. He has a uh, thing about nicknames that you can't have the same nickname as another athlete, but since now he's on with a with a UFC fighter, it's it's different. Iron Dang, Michael Megan, is not you, Iron you, Mike. Okay. You were talking trash. You were talking trash off camera, bro. He was talking shit. Six four one sixty five. Dude, gosh dang it. <laughs> no, I get it. No, because people have given me tra- give, people give me crap. Like, hey, you you're there's only one Iron Mike, Iron Mike, Iron, and I'm like, well. I'm not Iron Mike. I try to say Iron Michael and let people know it's Iron <laughs> Michael, not Iron Mike. But, yeah. but I also, nicknames are a tough thing because if you don't choose your own or, or, or choose, not really choose your own nickname or go with your own nickname, a nickname eventually sticks. And it might not be the nickname that you want, want you know, you could call you freaking Twinkle Toes Macon and freaking you're like, well, it, it sticks to I don't think they'd be calling you know? Twinkle Toes. I think it'd be calling Brick Feet Macon. Hey, listen. I, and we've been having this debate for three weeks here. I think nicknames are fine to to recycle and be close to one another. Anyways, I just wanted to bust your balls and see your reaction. I had that nugget for you. You didn't even know his nickname. So he wasn't talking shit about you, Mike. That was a plant by me. Okay, um, good. Nice. Good so work. so when it comes to like when it comes to these purses, Askren said he made more in one bout than he did in Bellator nine fights, as far as like his base purse or whatever I might be yeah. butchering this. And Tyron's his manager says he's going to make more in this fight than he ever did. I mean, so how do you guys look at this? Are you like, go get your money, guys? Or is it like, is it kind of cheapening the sport? Or it's a totally different Hunter, sport? Well, it, it, it's hard because there's, there's almost two, you have to look at it in two different worlds. Because you got to remember, Ben Askren was retired, came off the couch after a hip, a hip oh, yeah. replacement. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tyron Woodley is now... He's not he's not retired by any means, but he's I guess he got done with his UFC contract and now he's going to do it, which Tyron's completely separate. Yeah. But so I don't want to put Tyron to that. I think Tyron's gonna knock Jake Paul. Oh, out I do too. I'm time. excited. But but before that it was a YouTuber and then it was a Nate Robinson, an NBA player, who's a professional athlete but not a professional fighter. Then he fought Ben Askren, who came off the couch after a hip surgery, and now he's fighting Tyron. So before I actually go into into it and say Tyron the man is gonna kill Jake Paul. Kudos to Jake Paul for actually taking the Tyron Woodley fight because that's a crazy fight for him to take. Um, so I do think he's going to get his block knocked off. But then you watch Floyd Mayweather, who weighs 150, and Logan Paul, weigh, who weighs probably 200 pounds and cut down to 190, who's six foot two, and Floyd's you know five six or whatever he is. And, and Floyd still carried the fight. Floyd carried the fight against Connor, but they they make this mystique about it just just to just to leave that dangling of the carrot for all the media to say, man. Logan Paul did really well. There should probably be a rematch so they can all make another $100 million. It's like kind of crazy. Well, it feels like this is the first time one of the Paul brothers is truly swimming in the deep end with Tyron 100%. Woodley. Like, 100%. And I'm glad they're finally going to swim in the deep end. And that's no disrespect to Ben Askren, who's an incredible athlete and a champion and somebody that has been heights that I wish I could have. You know, like in, in an individual sport, amazing. But he was coming off a hip. He didn't look like yeah. he was into it. And he got well, his back. the one... Well, he's the, I mean, he's, we love Ben and Ben would tell you this too. Ben's not known for his striking. I'm not going to yeah. say he's the worst striker in mixed martial arts, but it's a different probably sport. In the, yeah. But you know, but he, he was never known for his striking. He was dominant with his wrestling and his grappling, his takedowns, his cardio his, and his ability to just wear guys down. 
you're not going to be able to do that in a boxing fight. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, I, I actually am really pumped for Tyron that he actually got the fight. And I say got, because I think it was going to, it sounded like it was going to be impossible for Jake Paul to actually take the fight against Tyron Woodley. But the good thing is now I can say, Hey, listen, if, if the some off chance Jake Paul actually beats Tyron Woodley, there's only one logical next opponent. And that's me because he beat the first two Missouri Tigers and he's got to fight the, he's got to fight the smallest of them and the third Missouri Tiger and run through all the Missouri Tiger, Tiger fighters. Oh, I like that. But this. I'll still be under contact. I'll still be under contact with UFC. So like, that's not going to happen, obviously. But, you know, maybe is we there can a pro athlete, train together. Is there a pro athlete you wouldn't mind seeing taking on one of the in one of these novelty fights, is there a pro athlete you'd enjoy watching get in a ring to see just how applicable that strength and athleticism would be? Dude, it's it's so hard because I mean you're around world class you were yeah. around world class athletes all those years in the NFL. And you're like, dude, that dude's a specimen. He can run fast, jump high. When he hits you, when he blocks you, there's probably a guy you can think about right now who just blocks the heck out of you and trying to get around the, yeah. around the corner, around the end. And you're like, this guy is a badass, right? But then all of a sudden, you could put some boxing gloves on him, and he hits like he looked drunk. Looks like he can't even. Yeah, right. Exactly. So fighting is such a hard thing to quantify because, and it's and it doesn't. And it, this isn't me saying that we are anything special or a different breed. It's just a different mm-hmm. type of athleticism. It's a different type of hand-eye coordination. It's a different type of movement that that you're just not used to in other sports. But man, I mean. Some of the NFL guys, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're an NFL guy who's maybe, you know, you're still athletic, good looking, maybe you're doing a, a, doing a podcast now, doing all kinds of cool, cool stuff, <laughs> you can speak, you're just a couple years out inside the NFL, but you're still extremely athletic, you still do some smoke. I mean, I would say that I would definitely do some of these boxing fights and make a couple. You, you don't know, know this, podcast might, this podcast might be paying pretty fucking well. And like I said. Well, well, that's the thing too. Trust me, I, it's I know like, about it. It's do I do I want to get Nate Robinson? That's the question. Is like because this is the that's way the I think hype. about fighting. And there's some people that are like, oh, I could beat any guy up because I'm like, that's such bullshit. You could get beat up by almost yeah. anybody just depending on like getting caught or that type of thing. Now you guys have defense mechanisms that are technical and, and um, ingrained over decades. Like if you're just a fucking run of the mill guy who might have been in a fight or two, that's not to say you're going to get in there and, and end up unscathed. And I think. When you're an athlete, kudos to Nate Robinson again for trying. But when he was laying on the ground, I was thinking to myself, "Why, dude? Yeah, like yeah, why? Just why it. do it? Like unless you're dead <laughs> broke. Like, and I'm not. I, I'm not. I don't know anything. But I'm yeah. just saying, like, this is not your arena. And if you get knocked out, like the difference between your son seeing you get knocked out, like on video in ten years, is much different than you know my son seeing me get knocked out because I was a football player that wanted to make a half a million on pay per view." That's not yeah. going to look as honorable as a guy who's like a champion and just lost yeah. the fight. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. this is what they no, do. That's, no, that's true. And, and that's the thing too. And I think the, that's part of it is if you are a Nate Robinson, I don't know how much money he has, or if you're a former NFL guy, you're probably, and you had as many years in the league as you did, or even, even somebody who had half the career that you did, like, why would you do that when you're probably in a, a much better Pretty position good. than most yeah. of these yeah most of these guys who are taking freaking the fight because but then again if it is a i don't want to say only a half a million i mean you're talking what, no, it's a lot of money day, whether it is it is but is it enough to get knocked out in front of that many people but then again you're also fighting a youtuber you're also like chad ochocinco <laughs> chad ochocinco i don't know who he fought but i saw some of those highlights it was cool to see him go that many rounds i thought that because, was cool 
it's cool. That many rounds, and I don't know who he was fighting, but there's also, I think more than anything is, and I don't want to say that other sports are, are not as, I don't want to put MMA on a pedestal, but there is something different about getting in a combat sport. If you're a guy who's like, man, I, I just need something to do. I need, I need something that's going to make me feel that, that rush again, that, that the bright lights in the crowd. I think it's a, it's a good way to do it, except you got the chance of getting knocked out, you know, but it's, if you luckily it's eight to 10 ounce gloves or whatnot. And Ocho Cinco didn't get knocked out. He got dropped, but man, good for him. You like, know what? He got he, back up and fought. Like I was impressed on one end cause his hands are so quick. And I texted you, I'm a layman. My assessment, really quick hands, obviously very athletic, but like the minute and his corner guy was saying to him, Maxwell's trainer, I think the guys from Roanoke actually he was one and oh, so it was a young boxer uh, who was like a, you know, uh, Ocho's is like hero. So it was weird seeing them fight. But his, the guy in his corner was like, get into his body. And the minute he got into his body, you could tell Ocho couldn't like bend and like fight inside. Like it's like a different yeah. thing. Because he had a lot of length on him too. Mm-hmm. Well, no, and, that, well, and that's the thing too. It's, it's, I, if I was going from combat sports, I mean, I would do it down the line, you know. Um, just, but it would have to be, even at that point, even for me to fight a YouTuber, I don't look at it, I don't look at it like, oh man, I got, I'm going to get paid a bunch of money to fight a YouTuber. I'm looking at it like I, I need to get paid a bunch of money because the chance that this guy accidentally catches me on the button and I lose to a YouTuber, it's, it's bad, you know? Mm-hmm. But I got all the aspirations to do all the stuff outside of fighting with podcasting and, and coaching and not coaching, but like mindset coaching and writing books and doing all that speaking and doing, doing the stuff that's going to pay the bills very well these days, obviously in, in 2021 being able to build that brand and build things outside then continuing to fight after my fight career has long gone and long passed, unless it was just something where it's, it, this thing just grows. I mean, who knows, honestly, in five years, there could be a minimum of guys making five, $10 million a fight and all these, it's, it's just crazy how it's growing. You, you don't know where this whole thing is going to be in five years. And I think it's going to be pretty darn big outside of Dana White who's done the most for fighting and as far as like guys that now have the luxury of you like 20 years ago there's no podcast to go on there's no you know there's no you can't parlay this into some media career this lucrative career who's the big dog when it comes to like thankfully that guy existed so we can do this well I, I think it all it all it all does boil back down to Dana White and the Fertitta brothers so Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta they bought the UFC for like two million bucks or whatever it was it was in the hole it was it was it, it was right around the time John McCain called it human cockfighting and <laughs> and that's pretty much what it was right which which John McCain essentially terrible word um, choice well he, well, he well, I mean truthfully if it's a brand new sport and you look at it I see why he said it. And then he did kind of retract his statement and kind of gave some props. And he actually, we, we went out to Washington and then we were talking about the Cleveland clinic um, and how they were going to start doing brain research. And there was UFC guys there. John Jones was there. I was there for Bellator and, and Kevin Kay who ran Spike TV. John McCain was there. And he was there talking about how the sport of mixed martial arts has grown and turned into a more um, mainstream sport. So that was really cool to see the growth, but the sport has grown and cleaned up and got a better uh, reputation because of what Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta and Frank Fertitta did in building the sport. And I would just say those were the three guys that did it. And I'll tell you this, my first conversation with Dana, I thanked him for that exact thing. And I said, Dana, I've been fighting now for 10, 11, 12 years outside your organization and you haven't paid me one dime, but indirectly you've paid me. Your name has been on every single one of my paychecks. 
indirectly because of how you built court and quarterback and champion the entire industry. Because, because without those guys taking it from quote unquote human cockfighting into what it, what it is now being known as a legitimate sport, none of us make a paycheck, you know, hands being deadly weapons. I feel like people probably try to try you like on account of being an MMA guy. And because on the surface, you're like a smaller MMA guy. So I'm sure like Mm -hmm. you've gotten one or two people that have been dumb enough to like, I don't know, like posture or try you. I feel like every time if you're a fighter, you walk in somewhere, idiots size you up. But the the catch for you is like literally you can be prosecuted differently than us. So how do you handle like conflict outside the octagon? And do you have to deal with that bullshit? Yeah, I mean, luckily for me, I mean, I even when I am in situations where that kind of stuff could happen, I always have my safe people around me. I always make sure I have my safe people who who can intervene, interject. You know, I mean, the only the only way that there's ever going to be some kind of altercation is if my wife gets messed with. You know, like that's pretty much about it. Like if I'm with my my dudes, I'm not going to be the guy. Like I'm sorry if I'm not the you know the 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 dude that everyone wants, everyone wants me to be. But if my dude, wants, my buddy wants to get into a fight, do your thing, bro. Cause I'm, I'm trying to be able to feed my family. I'm not jumping in on this one, you know? Yeah. Um, but it is true. I mean, essentially any fight that I would ever be in outside of a, of a sanctioned MMA fight, I'm going to be looked at differently. I could get jumped by 25 guys and there's a, there's a, there's a judge out there who, who would say, well, you're a pro fighter. So you probably started it. You probably have anger issues. You probably have this, you probably have that. So I just know, you know, that's, you know, a stigma that we're always going to have, even if you don't know the sport, um, or even if you do know the sport, you're always going to end up having that kind of stigma. Um, so for me, it's, I, I would just curl into the fetal position if something breaks out and be like, well, I got beat up by that guy at a bar. Is there a strategy for making? <laughs> He's never been in a bar fight that I know of. If he wants to be in a bar fight at some juncture, gets a wild hair. What's his best strategy? Best strategy would making you wear a lot of hats. Yes. You wear hats a lot? Yeah, I mean, the best thing we do, you kind of walk up, you kind of walk up to them, and you take the hat off, and it's like, man, I don't want to do that. And you throw the hat in their face, and then it blinds them, and then you go straight to the nut punch. Ooh, nut okay. punch. Okay. Nut punch. One. Nut or gut. Like, you can go straight to, the, straight to the stomach or nuts, but aim for the nuts, and if you go a little bit high, you go to the, you know, you go to the gut, so you're good. Okay. And then you run. One complicating <laughs> factor, and that's actually another complicating factor, my inability to run. But uh, <laughs> slow pitch intramural softball in college uh, dislocated and broke my pointer finger on my right hand. And I, I told Ooh. a friend once, I'm not able to make a fist. And the friend mm-hmm. said, why would you ever want to? And I thought, oh, that's a really nice sentiment. That's a nice thought. But I don't really have a fist here on my dominant hand. Oh, uh, yeah. Do I just go offhand? I also Left have... hand, grab, cup. Yep. That's good. Yeah, I mean, you could you could always yeah you always go with the, yeah you always go with the nut grab and left hook. So you just gotta get a really good left hook. Okay, Look up that's... Charles Oliveira versus Michael Chandler. He throws a really great left hook that ruined my life. I thought you look up that left. Hook. <laughs> or or look or look up that left that you threw at uh, the dude over in Abu Dhabi. <laughs> well, he wants to be self-deprecating. I want to finish with the family thing, man, because you know you have a wonderful, beautiful family, and you guys adopt a kid. Yep. from Texas. It takes you a year to go to get the paperwork straight. Like everybody's heard it's a nightmare to adopt that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that moment feel like? And what were the biggest challenges of dealing with uh, that process? 
Yeah. So, I mean, he was, so he was already, he was already born. And I guess when we, when we went through our preferences, as you go through the adoption process, you have preferences, you know, my wife always wanted to adopt ever since she was 14 years old, 15 years old. Um, so we had our preferences. We wanted to be a boy and he, we, but we thought we wanted a newborn and turns out he was, he, he was like nine months old. Um, but we got a phone call after all the, after all the paperwork finally got done, we got an email that said, congratulations, you're now eligible to adopt. And then six minutes later, we got a phone call that said, congratulations, you're eligible to adopt. By the way, there's this case down in Texas. You know, we think it matches your preferences perfectly. They sent a picture. Um, it was actually two pictures side by side from like a cell phone or whatnot. And immediately I was just like, my eyes started welling up with tears and I got this feeling all over my body. And I was like, that's my son. There was something about his, his look. There was something about his eyes. He was drooling. He was like, you know, in one picture, he was like drooling and sucking on a little binky or whatever. But it was just something about his eyes, his, just the way that he looked. What I saw on the computer screen, I said, that right there, I don't know why, but I said, that is my son. And 48 hours later, we were down in Texas, essentially, uh, waiting to adopt him. And it was just, it was the craziest, scariest feeling in the world because essentially even though it was a one year process to get all the paperwork done i feel like and obviously we haven't had any biological children of our own yet but right. you probably you probably have that okay it's getting she's getting bigger her, her stomach is getting bigger the due date is getting closer we are getting time to prepare we're getting everything set up the nursery blah 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 and but for us it was like email phone call flight flight you know or driving down to to texas and 72 hours later, we have a child and we get thrusted into parenthood and we didn't even know how to be parents, you know, which I guess is essentially how everybody is. You don't really know how to be parents until you actually No, until you leave the, the, I mean, you didn't have to leave the hospital, but you know, like I remember when our first kid came and we leave the hospital, it's like, wow, now you actually have to take the kid home and care for the kid and you didn't give us any instructions. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Where's the owner's manual? Yeah. And I mean, everybody that's heard about the process of adoption knows it's, it's really tough. But then on, on the other end of it, like every time, you know, somebody sees you and your child together, you're different color. You guys look mm-hmm. different. You, you probably come from different backgrounds. Has that been a challenge ever? I know it's not a challenge for you, but it's been a challenge for people from a perception standpoint. You know, I've seen some people get mad at you about the UFC Black History Month thing that they ran, yep. which I thought like, here you are two wonderful people adopting a kid and you're doing something to try to do the right thing and to spread some love and and you know you get backlash well i understand some of the backlash but not at you guys do you feel like there is a perception problem yeah i mean kind of i guess the weird thing about it is when we're like i think when we first adopted them obviously i'll I'll never forget when we were down in texas we were kind of stuck down there for almost like 10 14 days because you can take possession of your adopted child but you have to wait for this paperwork to go through to let you go across state lines or else it's like kidnapping. You actually have to get the papers right. done, processed. Then you can actually go back to your state. Obviously we were in Texas. We needed to go up to Nashville. So we were stuck in Texas and all we could do really was, you know, go to the mall or we went to the zoo one time or some little pumpkin patch or something. So immediately I'm, you know, a white man with a, a black son and a white wife. And immediately it's like, okay, so you're a little bit more cognizant of it or immediately you might see a black family or you might see a, we were at the food court at this, at the mall. And there was a, there was like a little bit older black lady. And I saw her looking over at us 
but she didn't really have much on her face. She wasn't smiling or anything. And then she would look over at us again. And then, then she started walking over to us. And that, that moment was like, I felt like you're walking to the principal's office or I felt like, you know, like one of those, those moments where it's like, all right, this could be, this could be really good. This could be really bad. This is my first interaction with a African-American, you know, adult walking over to essentially say something about our new kind of biracial family. And she came over and she goes, Oh my God, he is so handsome. He is so beautiful. Look at his eyes. And she just, the way it was almost like that lady. I wish I could sit her down right here and say, you, what is your name? Because you almost gave me that permission. You gave me that permission to walk into the world now as a, as a, a father of an adopted young African American man, a black man to give me the permission to just parent him, love him and be unapologetically. This is our situation. This is what we're doing. I don't know what it's like to be a black man in America or a, a black human being in America. I don't know what it's like to be African-American. I have many African-American friends, many African-American teammates, but I don't know what it's like to be them. And I don't claim to to know what it's like to be them or the struggles that they've gone through, the positives or the negatives, the highs and the lows. I don't know. And it's obviously on me to educate myself, but I also don't want to put so much of an emphasis on it that my son grows up thinking that's the most important thing about him. The most important thing about him is he is a child of God. The most important thing about him is he is a man in America and he is going to grow up to do amazing things, whether he's black, whether he's white or he's any other race in between. So I just, I always remember that moment and that kind of let me let my guard down to say, okay, here and there, there's going to probably be some people who say their things that are probably going to hurt my feelings. Or maybe I turn off my commenting on my Instagram because people want to say things on my Instagram about my wife, my son, the the dynamics of our family. And it's, that's the un- unfortunate thing. And you know what the UFC did, I didn't, I didn't know what was happening until t- Twitter blew up and there was a 99% positive things talking about me and black history month and, and how I have a black son. But then of course there was the negative backlash of what does he know what it's like to be a black man in America or, or look at the UFC, you know, masquerading this white man with a black son. And, and you know, you just, you just really see the the sad parts of it all. And when really all I can do is, you know, wake up every single morning, thank God for another day and parent that child, parent my son into a high functioning member of society who is governed by grace, love, mercy, and serving not just not just our family, but his generation and being a leader in his generation and good things are going to happen. Mike Chandler, awesome fighter, up and coming in the UFC. It's never too late. He's 35. He's got about, what do we say, 10, 15 more years of kicking ass in him. Yeah, at least 15. And a great so dude. And a great dude out of the ring. Mike, long overdue. Hope you come back another time soon, man. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, brother. So you think you fight now? Well, actually, as dumb as it sounds, while he was telling me to throw my hat and hit somebody below the belt, I was actually like, yeah, it's a better plan than I've ever had. I mean, I've never really had to make a plan, but were I in a position to need a plan, it's not so bad. I punched a guy in the balls once. How'd that go? It was during a football game. Ooh. Yeah, you might be like, Chris, there were better ways, but it was Virginia Episcopal High School. We played VES back in the day, and they were a bunch of scumbags. (laughs) They were just a bunch of fucking scumbags. As you can probably tell from the name of the school. Yeah, more like scumbag high school. S-B-H-S. 
<laughs> and they had a coach that was like, hey, high low that kid. And if you don't know what high lowing is, try to ruin your career, try to like take your knee out. It's like somebody holds you up and somebody goes low and they were literally high lowing me and they had a coach that was cool with it. His name was redacted. I don't know who he is, but I got up on extra point block and I, I said, let me line up over the kid that was taking the knees out. You know, I don't know who I respect less, the kid who's taking the knees out of the person holding you up. But I located the cat who was taking my knees out because I told him to stop doing it. And he said, or what? <laughs> and I was like, oh, or what, huh? <laughs> and I came off and I threw like a Howie Long rip move right into this guy's scrotum. <laughs> <laughs> the ball was through the uprights like oh, six seconds Nobody before. was watching this guy. Nobody's watching this guy. Everybody was watching the ball go through the uprights. This guy's writhing on the, on the ground in pain. So I want to, this is my confession for punching a dude in the nuts. Just made me think of that. Uh, I like that move for you though. Yeah. I just worry that I've, I'm up here. I'm way up here getting down to a, to a belt. Drop to one knee. Okay. Just drop to one knee. I can see you do it in one motion. Let's practice that. Yeah. Why don't we just get on a heavy bag? You practice the hat. You know how the guys beat up the heavy bag? Yeah. Throw your hat at the heavy bag, drop to a knee, one motion, boom. And frankly, like what Mike was saying, I would like to line up 256 ounces of water, take it down during a show, and see if I weigh 16 more pounds. We'll try that. Okay. Hey, y'all take care. I'm